Greetings, friends, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Incredibly, a year has passed since we covered Night of the Crabs, and two years since we talked about the rats for our previous Halloween specials. Where the hell does the time go? Anyway, the patrons had their say, and this year the subject of our dive into the pulp horror that terrified and or disgusted us when we were mere burns comes once again from the typewriter of the late James Herbert. The Fog. As it's been a while since I pulled down one of the ridiculously heavy encyclopedias from the shelf to check an entry, I thought I'd see what 1986's Penguin Encyclopedia of Horror and the Supernatural has to say on Mr Herbert and his output up until that point. So, let's see. Britain's most popular horror novelist. He worked as art director at an advertising agency before he turned to writing full-time and now designs his own book covers and publicity. James Herbert is one of the few living British horror writers whose work is set in a recognisable, contemporary world. In his first novel, The Rats, 1974, mutated rats swarm out of the derelict areas of London's East End and ravage the city. The rats symbolise neglect of people and of their environment, a theme underlined by the book's several harsh but compassionate vignettes of urban loneliness. The Rats establishes Herbert as a writer of the kind of horror fiction that confronts its readers with aspects of reality they may prefer to ignore. It is a disaster novel in the tradition of John Wyndham, showing how ordinary people cope under extraordinary circumstances. And also of Nigel Neal, whose Quatermass stories use fantasies of disaster to illuminate flaws in society. This tendency is taken further in The Fog, 1975, in which the army inadvertently releases a buried cache of a gas that causes insanity. The madness sweeps England, and the book paints a landscape of nightmare, sometimes comic or terrifying, occasionally very violent. Herbert never gloats, however. His images of violence are powerful because they are painful, as in the films of Dario Argento, with whom he also shares a talent for set pieces. The fog is also distinguished by its breathless pace, a quality usually inimical to terror, which makes the book something of a tour de force. In its judicious use of colloquialism, his style parallels Stephen King's, but his voice is authentically English. His work shows a growing stylistic deftness. Some of his set pieces are awesome, but more intimate scenes are equally powerful. At its best, his work is an important example of horror fiction as the opposite of escapism. Mm. Now, at this point, I'll give fair warning. There is some choice language about to be unveiled, as well as discussion of scenes of a sexual nature, and lots and lots of violence. So, secure the animals, tape up your windows, lock away the garden shears and throw away the key, then join us as we venture into spoiler territory and unveil what's hidden in... The fog. <laughs> well, we're back for a spooky Halloween episode. Halloween 2022 already. That came around quickly. And with me in Derry and Tom's, I have Phil. Hello, Phil. Hi. And I have Graham. Hello, Graham. Hey, how's it going? And not only are you back again, only a couple of weeks after the last one, but you're back in your spooky, scary Japanese <laughs> RV in the woods. I certainly am. There's lots of owls around, so you might hear some hooting going on in the well, background. I'll just add to the ambience. Well, <laughs> and, of course, what are we here to do? Well, we're here to talk about James Herbert's The Rats, and we've got a bit of a challenge on oh, our hands. no. Well, the fog. Oh, oh, yeah. That's a good start, isn't it? We're here to talk about James Herbert's The Fog. We did The Rats a couple of years ago. For people who may not have tuned into a Halloween episode before, a couple of years ago we did The Rats. Last year we put it out to a patron vote and they chose Night of the Crabs, which was just a rocking good time. The first part of the Cliff Davenport trilogy. 
Then we followed that up with the second part of the Cliff Davenport trilogy a month or so later with Crab's Moon. And of course, the third part of the Cliff Davenport trilogy. And I think the last of the Cliff Davenport Crab's books, if I'm right, Graham? No, he's in the uh, Crab Sacrifice very briefly towards ah, the end. So sort of a cameo. Yeah. 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 Okay. We did put that one up for, we put Origin of the Crabs up for the vote, along with Devils of D-Day by Graham Masterton and Slugs by Sean Hudson, which, sotto voce, we might just do that for a laugh anyway at some point. But the winner, by some comfortable margin, was The Fog with more than half the votes. So this is the second time we've visited James Herbert on the podcast, first time being the rats, and this is James Herbert's second ever novel, published in, oh, let's have a look, 1975. This was one of those books, much like the rats, that was contraband when I was at school, for reasons we will soon discover, particularly when we get to the school scene, which I think probably explains a lot. But how much other James Herbert have you done, Graham? Uh, just the rats that you sent me and the fog. So mm. this is it. I'm two James Herberts in. Two for two. How about you, Phil? The same, but I also remember reading the follow-up to the rats. Was it the lair? Lair, yes. Yes, indeed. Lair was okay, but it wasn't as good as Domain, the third one, which is James Herbert gets to mix up his love of writing rat-related gore and carnage with the Third World War and a nuclear explosion in London. And it's so all those lovely little James Herbert vignettes that you get. You get about half a dozen of just people melting in nuclear blasts, which is it's one of his favourite things, isn't it? And he's really good at it. Anyway, the fog. We kick off. Oh, hang on a minute. What editions are we reading from? So this was published in 75. Which one are you reading from, Graham? I have got, I think it's 78. New England Library won that one, isn't it? It is New England Library, yeah. Phil, what you got? Uh, well, it tells all the years it's been reprinted. So the last one was 89. Oh, so yours is a, a much more recent one. Yours is the one with the little doll on the cover. Yes, Ooh. very nice. Little rag doll. I found this in Morecambe last year. Yeah, Scary Skies. I'm reading from an early 90s pan edition with the most rubbish cover. <laughs> yeah, how rubbish yeah. is that? It's terrible, isn't it? I have to say, I also used the audio version because I was running out of time. Ah. So, I, so I had it on double speed so I could get through it quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Which one was it? Was it the Christopher Lee one? It wasn't the Christopher Lee. I forget. Uh, it was on. It's on Audible. I forget the um, narrator, but it right. was quite good. It's pretty good. I did have the Christopher Lee one when I was at school on cassette. We talked about this briefly a while back, didn't we, Graham? So I went on eBay. And you can actually get the cassettes off eBay for about 20 quid. But I don't own a cassette player. So it was it, it was still an absolute effort of steel on my part to avoid buying it off eBay, but I managed to resist the urge. Yeah. I think if you, if you had a few more drinks, you would have bought it, right? Yeah, very possibly. Yeah, And, and a cassette player, probably. I've got uh, one. Really? You kept that quiet, didn't you? No. Well, you know what? You know what that means? I'm now going to be able to get all these Dungeon Synth cassettes <laughs> off the shelf and actually play them for the first time. <laughs> and of course, Dave sent us a Sonus Usurper of the Universe cassette as well, and it's never been played, so now is the time. I've just seen Phil take a sneaky glass of wine, and I've realised I haven't cracked a beer yet, so I'm just going to take a pause for a second to open up a spooky Halloween beer, which is... It's a BBB squared. It's a Big Berry Bonbon Strawberry Milkshake IPA at 7.2%. That is pretty horrifying. I'll just crack that. 
Have you got a drink this evening, Graham? I have. It's um nothing spectacular, really. I, I'm, I'm living in the middle of nowhere, so I've got very limited limited supply of alcohol. So yeah. it's it's a it's just a brew dog. So well, that in itself is horrific. So it's quite apt. <laughs> I feel ashamed saying it, but you know, there we go. You know Needs what? must. Cheers, all. Let's have a taste of this. Cheers. Oh, that's all right. I just need to make sure I don't let it get up to room temperature and it'll be fucking foul. Right, anyway, The Fog, chapter one. Straight away, I think there's a bit of a step up in James Herbert's writing because the first chapter really is a really nice, evocative collection of passages that do a really, really good job of establishing this nice, peaceful, pastoral scene of routine and laid-back life. So I'll just, I'll just read the opening chapter because it's quite nice. Not the opening chapter, that'll take forever. I'll read the opening paragraph. Otherwise we'll be here all night. The village slowly began to shake off its slumber and come to life. Slowly, because nothing ever happened with speed in that part of Wiltshire. A mood of timelessness carefully cultivated by the villagers over the centuries prevailed. Newcomers had soon fallen into the leisurely pace and welcomed the security it created. Restless youngsters never stayed long, but always remembered, and many missed the protective quiet of the village. The occasional tourist discovered by accident and delighted in its weathered charm. But within minutes its quaintness would be explored to the full and the traveller would move on, sighing for the peace of it, but a little afraid of the boredom it might bring. Hmm, it's quite a nice opening, establishing paragraph for somewhere where we know something really fucking horrific <laughs> is going to happen before long. But we, we meet a few people, we've got the place, we meet a few people, so we've got, we've got Jessie, a widow running a sweet shop. Mr. Papworth, the butcher over the road. We've got Tom the Posty. And we've got Freddie and Clara, a local Bobby's kids who stop by for penny goodies. Ah, penny goodies. I often find that we can age ourselves by our memories of penny goodies. And I once had a conversation with someone and said, Oh, do you remember two for one mojos? And he said to me, Well, there were three for one when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fuck off three for one mojos. That's incredible. But yeah, mojos, two for a penny. And I remember penny goodies. Blackjacks. Blackjacks. Fruit salad. Fruit salads. And then if you really, really went to town, you went to 2p for a refresher. That was if you were feeling particularly flush. I love penny goodies. I even like the pink shrimps. You remember pink shrimps? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And um, the yellow bananas that tasted of banana flavour, not banana. They were a bit weird. The sugared mice. Yeah, and uh, flying the saucers. And the teeth. Oh, yeah. Goodies shaped like teeth and gums. They were a bit weird, weren't they? <laughs> they were a bit weird. But actually, in their own way, quite yeah. horrific. And the chocolate cigarettes. Yes. Oh, I remember yeah. cigarettes, but not chocolate ones. Remember well, the was, candy ones. Yeah, it was kind of like a candy chocolate, not like a real chocolate, but you had the, had the paper around it. But it was it was cigarettes. You're eating cigarettes. Just very strange. <laughs> Freddie and Clara go into the post office to get the penny goodies. And she gives them, I think, three each for four pence. Uh, the days when you could go to shop with four P and get a bargain. So all this takes place two or three pages. It's neat. It's tidy. It's efficient. It establishes very quickly a small group of characters. And they're all kind of archetypes that are really familiar and easy to warm to. So all of that adds to the impact when shit happens. <laughs> so Jessie, the woman running the sweet shop, 
After reading a letter from a son dropped off by Tom the Posty, some sort of earth tremor rocks the shop, and afraid of being trapped in a collapsed building, she makes for open air. The postman stood in the middle of the road holding onto his bike. A huge crack appeared at his feet and suddenly, as the ground opened up, he disappeared. The crack snaked along the length of the street to where young Freddy and Sarah stood transfixed. So there's a little mistake there, James Herbert. It's Clara, not Sarah, you amateur. Anyway, <laughs> clutching to one another and on towards Mrs Thackeray who had been making her way to Jess's shop. Suddenly it seemed as though the whole village had been wrenched apart. The road disappeared as the ground opened up like a gigantic yawning mouth. Jessie looked across the road and just caught sight of the terrified face of Mr Papworth as he and the whole row of shops and houses on his side were swallowed up by the earth. Chapter 1 Cliffhanger There's a bit of a habit that James Herbert's got that he uh, utilises frequently, which is something happens and then he skips off to somewhere else and someone else in order to have a little vignette and a little bit of characterisation to build something up. But in this case, it's James Holman. Sorry, no, John Holman, our chief protagonist, who I think it's fair to say is not quite as much of a massive pervert as uh, Harris in The Rats, but he still has his moments. He's driving along, and we get a little bit of information about what his deal is and what his job is. And amusingly, he works for the Department of the Environment, which uh, gave me a few laughs for one reason <laughs> or another. But it's... it's his Department of the Environment job is really a really cool Department of Environment job. He's not a typical civil servant. He goes undercover to try and unveil terrible, shocking problems being caused for the environment by not just industry, but other government departments. And he's been laying low in the countryside around Salisbury, Salisbury Plain, keeping an eye on an MOD establishment to see what on earth they're up to. Hmm, I wonder if this will come into play later on. But, great job. But we quickly get him into the action, and we expand upon the horror of the earthquake. So we get this exciting scene where his car is dragged into this cracking, gaping crevice which has opened up in the village, and one side of the road has collapsed into this hole. And while he's down there escaping from his car, he sees a little girl, he sees Clara on the other side, and in a very cinematic episode, he clambers across the car, manages to avoid plummeting into the depths, and gets hold of Clara, who obviously is pretty terrified. And he thinks, what had caused it? It certainly wasn't any gas mains explosion, not with this devastation. The hole was too deep, too long. No, it had certainly been an earth tremor, not as serious as those suffered in other countries, of course, but of just as great a magnitude because it happened in England. Why? Have the nearby military installation been testing some underground explosives? He had evidence of some pretty strange goings-on from his discreet weekend visit, but doubted they had anything to do with this. A chain reaction, perhaps, from one of their experiments? But probably nothing to do with them, for, after all, they had vast areas of British-occupied wasteland in far-off countries to carry out their testing. England was no place for experiments of this kind. It was more likely a freak of nature, a disturbance below, that had been building up for centuries, Probably thousands of years. And today had been the day for it to erupt. Well, guess again, Holman. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> it says, just then, Holman noticed movement at his feet. At first he thought it was dust caused by the disturbance, but then saw it was billowing up from below. It was like a mist, slowly rising in a sluggish, swirling motion. Slightly yellowish, although he couldn't be sure in the gloom. It seemed to spread along the length of the split 
moving up towards his chest, covering the girl's head. She started to cough, then looked up and her whimpers became stronger when she saw the mist. He lifted her higher so that her head was level with his shoulder. Then the mist reached his nostrils. It had a slightly acidic smell to it. Unpleasant, but not choking. He got to his knees, wondering what it could be. Gas? A ruptured mane? He doubted it. Gas was generally colourless. This had some substance to it. It was more like, well, a fog. It had body, a yellowish tinge, a slight but distinct odour, a vapour probably released by the eruption from deep underground, trapped for centuries, finally finding its way to the surface. Mmm. We have this strange fog. His foreboding was well justified, because it's not just any fog. It's the fog. And it's yellow. And it's yellow. And we do get a few more um, little indications that it's not quite a normal fog <clears throat> later on, don't we? But for the moment, he's trapped down there. It's terrible. Every, people at top are scrambling to the edges to look down, see what's going on. So it's problematic, this fog. So he's trying to get out, and we cut to the people above. He says the people above heard the cry for help coming from the huge hole that had wrecked the village. They'd assumed that anyone who plunged into it must surely be dead, but now gained new heart at the sound of a voice, a chance to react against the tragedy. The policeman, whose children were thought to have been lost in the eruption, was lowered over the edge of the crack. He wouldn't give up. He'd searched the rubble and still half-collapsed, potentially dangerous buildings. He hadn't found his youngsters yet. When they heard the cry for help, he was already tying a stout rope to his waist to be lowered into the hole to search for survivors. When he emerged five minutes later, he held a small, unconscious girl in his arms. He laid her on the ground to be taken care of by the elderly but competent doctor. <laughs> Fucking old, old bleeder. <laughs> he kissed her once, tears from his eyes falling on her face, then dashed back to the hole and was lowered again. This time he brought up a man. A man covered from head to foot with dust and dirt. A man who gibbered and screamed. A man who had to be restrained by four others from running back and throwing himself into the black depths. A man who was insane. The villagers watched the mist rise from the hole, not billowing over the edges, but rising in a densely packed, steady column, the centre of which seemed to glow faintly. Or was it merely the strong sun shining through it, rising high into the air to form a heavy, yellowish cloud? It looked like the aftermath of a hydrogen bomb, only a much smaller mushroom shape, the lower column finally ending and joining the cloud in the sky. It was soon forgotten when the winds blew it away, not dispersing it, but moving it in a huge, almost solid-looking mass across the sky, away from the ruined village. Scary stuff. It is very well written, though. I like his description of how he brings up his child and then the very mad John Holman. I actually forgot how mad he was. Mm. Yeah. There, there are descriptions later on of, of people. We get it with his girlfriend, don't we? Many people. Being, being <laughs> kind of mad, frothing and... Mouthing obscenities that people never thought they would hear oh, coming yeah. from their loved one's mouth. Yeah. Threatening things that they never knew were possible. Yeah. There's a great bit, and I'm sure we'll cover it later on, but with the sort of Harry Krishnas, which is really... <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, oh yeah, we'll get to that. But chapter three is some classic James Herbert. It's a three-way James Herbert vignette special about the vicar, the farmer and the poacher. Each is horrific in its own way. And this chapter's I'm kind sorry, of... I thought the vicar was funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a bit with a vicar that's burned into my memory. It's one of the things I remember most about reading this when I was at school. But each is introduced to the fog in turn, and then we get the denouements. We get the money shots 
So first of all, we get the vicar, Martin Hurdle. He knew just how he would tell his congregation that Sunday morning, just when his voice would soften almost to a whisper, to allow him to build up to a loud, heart-staring climax. After 30 years as a clergyman, he now knew the subtle inflections his voice would use, and the times he had to boom out to reach his parishioners. At 52, he had not quite despaired, yet, of human nature. There was good in the worst people, just as there was hypocrisy in the most devout. He shrugged his shoulders helplessly. He usually enjoyed his early Sunday morning walk across the fields, his pace brisk, his mind running through the sermon he would deliver that day, but he supposed the tragedy of the eruption still bore heavily on him. Having heard the news, he'd driven to the village to try to help, to administer the last rites to the dying, to comfort the injured. The last war had been the only experience he'd had of death and injury in these proportions, and he'd believed he'd got over the horror of it. But old memories had been resurrected. Scars he'd thought healed were opened freshly. So he's out there having his morning walk. Then he wanders into a fog, and he has a scare with some cows in the fog. Yeah, more on them later. So over to the poacher. He's doing a bit of poaching. He's stewing over his arch enemy, Colonel Meredith, and he gets caught in the yellow tentacles of the mysterious fog too. But back to the good reverend. And as previously mentioned, this is one of the passages in this book that stayed with me for almost 40 years since I first read it. The Reverend Martin Hurdle prepared himself for his Sunday morning service. As he donned his cassock, he smiled at the thought of the panic he'd been in earlier when he got lost in the fog. Usually, one of the joys of the week. His early morning walk had almost turned into a nightmare. He couldn't explain the lift he'd felt when he emerged again into the sun, the sense of relief, the delight of being released from that sinister cloud. He had a slight headache now, but otherwise he'd got over the unpleasant experience and no doubt would chuckle when he recounted the story to his friends. The church was fairly full today, the pleasantness of the weather helping, but the tragedy of the neighbouring village accounted primarily for the large audience. The vicar greeted his parishioners at the door of the church as they went in, chatting briefly with some, smiling and nodding at others. When it was time for the service to begin, he entered through a side door into the sacristy, hurried his altar boys along and walked briskly with them into the church. The service began as normal, pleasurable to some, boring to others, but today, because of the tragedy, meaningful for most. A few people near the front noticed the vicar occasionally put his hand to his forehead, as they were tired or had a headache, but the service continued smoothly enough. They sat and looked up at him when he climbed the steps to his pulpit, anxious to be comforted by his words in their time of sadness. He looked down on the upturned expectant faces, eyes focused on him, eager for him to speak. Then, the Reverend Martin Hurdle, vicar of St Augustine's for eighteen years, lifted his cassock, undid his trousers, took out his penis, and urinated on the congregation. <laughs> Classic, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's one of the two things that are kind of burned into my memory from reading this when I was like 12 years old. As to teenage me, it was mind-blowing. It was like, oh, this, it was the most shocking thing I'd ever read. It was outrageous. Well, little did I know, this is only about 20 pages into this book and there's lots more to come. They're slowly easing us in. That's <laughs> yeah, what he's doing. It's true. <laughs> yeah. That whole contraband books at school thing was was fascinating. Because I, I can remember when there was a, what we used to call a wet playtime, the weather was too unpleasant for the kids to go out. You would end up having to spend playtime sitting in a classroom. And an older kid would come and have to keep an eye on you from one of the classes above us. 
and I can remember one with his feet up on a teacher's desk reading the fog. And <laughs> that was maybe uh, probably a year before I got my paws on it. But yeah, and we will get to that place. And it won't be long either when, you know, we'll find out probably why, much like the school scene in The Rats, this was frowned upon. Not just the general content, but the school scene somewhat frowned upon. But now we meet farmer George Ross. He can't find his cows. Then he finds them. Don't end well. <laughs> Don't end well for George. <laughs> Poor George. <laughs> Poor George. His, his, his cows make short shrift of him. So what we do know is that the fog also affects animals now. And that'll come into play later on as well, won't it? And then finally, we get back to Tom, still fuming about that snooty kernel. So he murders him, his family, and both the maids with an axe, and then kills himself. I really so. felt for the I really felt for the cook. She'd just cooked all the breakfast for everyone else, and then he sticks an axe in her head. Yeah. It's quite unfortunate, isn't it? But there's also a reference to how horrified she is that her lady is is getting is getting roughed up with an axe yeah. as well. The maid, I think. Oh, the maid. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah. comes in and finds it all happening, doesn't she? Yeah. But the maid, they leave it to you to decide whether she actually gets killed, don't they? Yeah. They do, do until later on. Right. Oh, was it? As, as, uh, yeah, we expanded find out the font. <laughs> yeah, we find out in a future chapter. And this is one of the things, unlike the rats, when you get these vignettes and people die, sometimes they are referenced further on, so you get a yeah. little bit more information, a little bit more intel on, on what happened. This happens with the school as well, doesn't it? Oh, there was too much detail with the school. Yeah, but there are references to the school incident, and we found out more about Quite what happened a lot. Yeah. when the police get involved. Yeah. This fog is serious business. On to Chapter 4, Holman's recuperation. We meet Casey, and we come across the school bus for the first time. Holman wakes to find his lady friend at the end of his bed, Casey. She's really called Christine, but Casey is his nickname for her. We find out where that comes from later on as well. And I think it's... And it's like, and she doesn't know why. And it's like, (laughs) why don't you ask him? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she's just like, yeah, all right, whatever. But, you know, we we do, of course, find that Casey is a very well-drawn and rounded female supporting character. And here's my evidence. Casey had known Holman for nearly a year now and was becoming more and more aware that if he ever left her, she would be lost. Her dependence on him was now stronger than even than her dependence on her father had been. When her mother had divorced her father eight years ago, she'd turned to him to provide the comfort and guidance every child needs from her mother. And he'd coped extraordinarily well. Well, we'll get back to that later, won't we? (laughs) Too well, in fact, for by overcompensating for the lack of his wife, he had tied the daughter almost irrevocably to him. Holman had begun to break the bonds between them, (laughs) unconsciously at first, but when he realised just how strong the ties were, he began to gently but purposefully draw Casey away from her father. He did this not so much out of love for her, but because he cared for her. As a person. He knew she had a strong mind and a will of her own, but she was too tightly enmeshed in her father's domineering love. If the relationship developed any further, then she would never be free to live her own life. Besides, the closeness between father and daughter made him uneasy. Holman, you control freak. Yeah, and, and you go on and he says she's got this independence. But it starts with, they get to a point where if if he ever left her, she would be lost. Yeah. Yeah, what oh, does yeah. that say about her? Yeah. But anyway, he's been raving for a few days, but he's recovered his marbles. And then he She spent... went to look after him. Oh, she did. She went through sheer hell 
including getting in trouble with a boss and all sorts of other things. So she is super, super dedicated. And she got sacked, didn't she? And she got, she sacked. got sacked, yeah. 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 But yeah, she, she said did. she wasn't bothered anyway because he, he was more interested in wearing her clothes than she was. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was. That's a very interesting bit there, isn't it? It's just like an aside, an aside, isn't it? Mentioning that the boss wanted to wear his, her clothes. I thought he'd look better than she did. <laughs> yeah. It's a feature of Ellie James Herbert, isn't it? That female characters... Um, I mean, I suppose it's fair. You're you're a 30-odd-year-old bloke. You're trying to write stories about horror and terrible scenarios. And maybe it's too much to expect that he might actually be able to um, articulate uh, a fair narrative about a woman instead of them just being a moist cave. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later on as well. Yeah. yeah. When he tries to write about lesbians. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. But uh, the when they leave, they encounter the fog and a crashed school bus full of annoying boys. The annoying boy's teacher and their driver, Mr. Hodges. Now, it's at this point, Holman's still not really got his shit together because he's suspicious about the fog, but they're still driving through it. And he's not at the point yet where he fully realises what's going on, so we could probably give him a pass. But the teacher is a real proper old school disciplinarian, and we'll find out a little bit more about him shortly. But Hodges, the driver, has got a head injury, so they're driving to a doctor report the accident to a police station. And at this point, Holman says, to be honest, Bobby, this fog might be a bit suspicious, but, they, but the old Bill's like, yeah, whatever. And curiously, while they're there, Casey thinks she saw a white glow in the flog. Yeah. The flog, the fog. The flog. But it was fleeting. Hmm. That may come into play later on as well. So, chapter five. They'll go for a pub lunch, they'll go back home, and then they'll go for a trip to see the boss. His boss, Spears. Just while we're talking about going back home to his flat, yeah. going back to the chapter before, when they was talking about how he was trying to get her out the clutches of the dad and yeah. to get her to have her own flat, which obviously she wouldn't be able to manage on her own. <laughs> and, she, and she said she would have moved in with John, but he drew the line at that. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I thought that was really important. Yeah, that's right. So on the one hand, he's doing everything he can to separate her from that are closest to the father, but on yeah. the other hand, is balancing that with, you know. But I'll only go so far because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, babe. I've got a, there's line. a line. Yeah, there's a real line here. And I think there's a reference to him having been bitten before by living with a woman. Yeah, and, he, what, and he wasn't he engaged once, yeah, but he got so. out of that once. About <laughs> that was another line that was crossed. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. He's being this weird, overpowering, domineering, controlling bloke trying to fuck up a relationship with a dad. As we learn later on, maybe not such a bad thing. Mm. Basically, it's all to make her get her own flat because there's no way he's having to move in with him. Yeah. But at least he doesn't draw the line at pub lunches because they do go for a pub lunch. Holman's miffed about the MOD. He goes to see his boss. Spears is frustrated that they've up, up to their security around anything to do with the establishment that Holman was surveilling. It all sounds very, very suspicious. A seed of suspicion was planted in Holman's mind. You suspect something, don't you? He asked Spears quietly. Spears spoke wearily. Look, I've been on to the Ministry of Defence. There's a massive clampdown in security. I don't know if it means anything, 
and I'm powerless if it does. I have a meeting arranged for this afternoon with the Defence Minister, Sir Trevor Chambers, and we hope to get some answers. Sir Trevor Chambers was their department's parliamentary undersecretary, a gruff, forceful man who indeed likes to get answers. Needless to say, this is strictly between you and me. And if you do discover the army is involved, well, we shall have to wait and see. Oh yeah, the usual answer. I suppose it'll go on file, will it? Damn your belligerence. Just who do you think you are? I think... He began to falter, and without thinking, Holman took advantage of the break in his words. For once, let's slay them. If they are responsible, let's break the bloody arms. Let's... Spears seemed to regain his composure and said, Let's remain calm. There's nothing to gain. Once again his voice trailed off in mid-sentence. Still unaware in his anger of the change that seemed to be taking place in his chief, Holman raged on, until finally there was no ignoring the strange, vacant look that had come into the eyes of Spears behind the heavy glasses. What's wrong? Holman asked, concerned. What's... He broke off as Spears rose from his chair, staring over Holman's head. Spears turned and walked to the window. Holman was still too puzzled to move. Spears opened the window and turned again to look at the surprised young man, his eyes for a second almost losing their blankness, a flicker of recognition returning to them, but lost again in an instant. And he turned back to the window, climbed onto the sill, and before Holman could make a move towards him, jumped out. Oh, good lord. What the chuff? <laughs> what's, what's going on there, then? So, question. Has Spears encountered the fog? Because, uh, how can that be possible? Because... If we think about time scales, the fog is still buggering about in the countryside in Wiltshire. Holman's just driven back to London, and Spears is in his office in London. How has Spears managed to get made crazy by the fog? That's a really good point, actually. I haven't picked up on that. Mm. Well, didn't Spears go and see him in the hospital? Did he? That's a possibility, I suppose. But at the time, I was thinking, what other possible reasons could there be? And I was thinking, because I have no memory of reading most of this, other than... <laughs> other than the Reverend Wien on his congregation and, and an unfortunate garden shears incident, which we'll get to shortly. I couldn't remember a thing about this book. So I was thinking at this point, have the army got to him? Uh, yeah, and I was thinking, I was, exp I was fully expecting later on when things start to get a little bit shady between the defence minister and someone else, I was thinking, is this going to be revisited later on and we're going to find out that he was poisoned or made to do this or something? But it's never revisited. So perhaps he did visit him in the hospital. Perhaps yeah, that's he how did. he got... Uh... He come to find out if he'd found any evidence that could connect the earthquakes with experiments being carried out on the military base. Right, that explains that then. That's me not paying attention properly. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was an interesting conspiracy theory. Which, it's easy uh... to miss little bits though, isn't it? It is, and theorising about military conspiracies is always good fun. Yeah. As well. Especially with it, yeah. Anyway, back to Hodges and the school teachers and the school children. Oh. Good Lord. <laughs> this is pretty grim. This is pretty grim. And this is, for me, kind of on a par with the Tramp chapter in The Rats. Yeah. In that I'm not going to read much of this out because it's really, really terribly yeah. horrifying. This is where I had to rapidly turn my uh, audio book off. <laughs> <laughs> realizing that my children might hear yeah yeah that's fair yeah not good for young ears let's find out why shall we so we'll learn a little bit more about the school teacher who we find out is called summers and the driver hodges and suffice to say they do not see eye to eye and summers is the deputy head 
who was employed by the headmaster, who wanted a, a real stern disciplinarian and somebody with a little bit of gravitas. So he employed this former army captain who lost an arm during the war. And he has condemned Hodges to the head teacher, accusing him of recklessness, showing off to the pupils, putting them in danger, even saying that he thinks that he's too close to the children and is far too in with them. But he doesn't know. He doesn't remember Hodges from the army, whereas Hodges remembers him, doesn't he? That's right. Hodges has some history with Summers, but Summers isn't aware of it. He knows his secrets. That's right. When Hayward, the head teacher, confronts Hodges, he says, when Hayward had confronted the wretched-looking driver who acted as janitor, gardener, and performed countless other tasks around the school, he'd admitted it was true. He had gone on, in a surly tone, to imply certain notions about the deputy head. It was because of these implications that Hayward decided to sack Hodges, not because of the misadventure in the fog. He could not allow the man to go on spreading these allegations against one of the members of his staff, particularly as he could provide no proof of them. As for Summers, Hayward would not even question the man. It would be too embarrassing for both of them, but he would certainly keep an eye on him. So yeah, Hodges has been trying to spill the beans on what he knows about Summers, and branding Summers some kind of pervert. But as he said, Phil, Hodges is an ex-soldier himself, and we find out that he was at the same camp at Aldershot, where him and his mates became aware that Summers was a gay man. And part of this chapter is actually one of the most distressing ones in the whole book. We get down to all of the, you know, the fog-related violence later on, but there's uh, a real distressing reality to the Summers revelations. And it's one where I think, unfortunately, Herbert's mean-spiritedness, much like that tramp chapter in The Rats, shows through a little bit, and the attitude of the time shows through clearly. And Hodges himself was, at Aldershot, he was a cook, and there's a paragraph here I'm going to read, and there is a fuck of a lot going on in this paragraph, and there is lots to unpick. So it's about Hodges. It says, He thought back to the old days, to the huge army installation at Aldershot, the rough training ground for thousands of raw recruits. There had been tension in the air in those days. The war was in its third year. Every week more and more soldiers were being shipped abroad, and each week they seemed younger and less experienced. Hodges was a corporal in the cookhouse and was content to idle away the war as such. He knew of Captain Summers, had heard the rumours about him, sniggered with his cronies each time they saw the thin, waspish figure march by, saluting, but wriggling their little fingers at him when he passed. But Summers hadn't been the only one. In a camp that size and with so many raw young men, homosexuality was not too unusual. It was sneered at, true, despised by most, but many had secretly indulged in its illicit pleasure. Hodges had even tried it himself once, but found it painful, and too much like bloody hard work for his liking. The rumoured bromicide in the tea didn't seem to do much good. He used to chuckle at himself when on night duty at the thought of all those pricks raised secretly towards the stars, pumped by thousands of hands all over the camp. So, Hodges' hatred for Summers certainly carries a healthy dose of self-hatred, perhaps some racket feelings going on there as well. So Hodges is has got this problematic self-image as well as anything else, and he doubles down on hating Summers, potentially as a result. Now, Summers propositions a young recruit, but it goes poorly, and he becomes the victim of a rather brutal old practice. I say old practice, probably not an old practice, it probably still happens. But when I was a teenager, it was called queer bashing. 
a very unpleasant and real fact of the experience of homosexual men. And he's beaten by this recruit and his friends, is chased into a field by his main attacker, the recruit he propositioned, and they stumble into a minefield which kills the recruit and takes Summers' arm. So he had a pretty shit war, did Captain Summers. Now, how we go on to describe this chapter and the conclusion of the fog's effects on Summers, Hodges and the schoolboys. Yeah. I've already compared this probably with the Tramps chapter in the Rats. It's incredibly cruel. Yeah. The interesting thing for me in that whole in that bit that you've just described there, Andy, mm. is you could you could write a whole novel just around that whole experience of of, of Summers. Yeah. Um you know, th- there's a lot going on there and it could have yeah. obviously it wouldn't fit in the fog. No. But it could have been expanded into a very interesting and very different story. Yeah, it's a really affecting and vivid and cruel scenario that certainly bears more explanation sorry, exploration in a story. It does leave you wanting more to know more about it because you get just enough to be able to ask yourself those questions. Yeah, yeah. What else true. went on and Yeah. You know, I can remember my granddad, not Pops, my mum's dad. Pops was my dad's dad, but my granddad, he was an incredibly intolerant, racist person, as many men of his generation were. And the exception to that was about homosexuality, because he was quite open. He would never stop talking about the war. He told the same stories over and over and over again. I think I referred to that in the outro to the last episode. But he was quite open about the fact that lots of the men he served with were, you know, obviously the language was wrong because he said they were pufters. But he was incredibly open about that and just took it as a, a, a simple fact of life. There were still his mates, you know? And it's, um, it's one, of those, one of those interesting things, but there's certainly something about you know Hodges that is a little bit more complex on that front. I think you could actually read that passage and think that Herbert is making an interesting observation and that in itself is not problematic, but it gets problematic because the rest of this chapter is cruel, it's violent, it's horribly protracted. As previously mentioned, it's probably the reason that this book, along with the rats, was one of the big contraband books when I was at junior school. Suffice to say, ends with a pair of shears and an erect todger, which is the other thing that was burned in my memory from this book. But I'd forgotten a lot of the other details. I'd only really remembered the exclamation point to this whole litany of transgressions. And there is a reference to Summers going to the gym, looking forward to watching these young boys doing their physical education. And it's at that point, oh, really? So Herbert is equating a homosexual man with a potential paedophile, and that's pretty unsavoury. Probably the biggest loser in all this, though, is the poor PE teacher, Osborne. Osborne. Um, I really felt for it. Yeah, he, he gets it worse, and we barely knew him. Yeah, and he got on with the kids as well. Yeah. He was a nice guy. Yeah. So, yeah, um, dear listeners, it's, this is a, a, a genuinely harrowing chapter, um, which we probably won't talk about in any more detail but well, the other thing to rough mention talking of heroin is the poor boy who hadn't been in the fog who had to witness it all yeah we found out about him later on don't we we found out that there's a witness mm. and uh and we found out what happened after the garden shear todger incident yeah but we'll get to that in a, in a wee while chapter seven home and gets home and at this point, if you were wondering because they've driven through the fog in a sports car was casey gonna go do lally tap because of the fog now you know. Holman fights her for three pages <laughs> before eventually beating her down with open hand slaps <laughs> and tying her up. But he does they call it... They have a good fight. They, they have, have a great fight. fight. They have a cracking fight. I like the fact that he slaps her as well a few times. Well, I don't like it, but it just... 
what amused me the most is after he's finally managed to um, contain her, he calls her darling <laughs> as he's tied her up. So it's not a relationship breaker, which is nice. She's gone crackers because of the fog. She's tried to yeah. kill him. He's slapped her down, tied her up, but he's still calling her darling. So that's okay. nice. And of course, just, her blouse ripped and exposed her breasts. Oh, yeah, her, her small breasts. His... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think he gets a bit of a bit of a stiffy at that point, doesn't he? Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, because he's he's trying to restrain her and he happens to be between her legs and yeah. it nature yeah. takes over. Yeah. Her thighs, are, I think that's it is. That's right. That's our first thigh <laughs> reference, yeah. isn't it? Thigh, not leg. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we get thighs and we get small breasts. Because whenever her breasts are referenced, and it does happen a few more times, they're always small. They're small breasts. So it's great, because she might not be able to move in with him, but even after she's tried to kill him, he still calls her darling. So that's good. And then, well, 5-0 turn up, don't they? In the form of a couple of coppers, who we'll get to know a little bit. There's Detective Inspector Barrow, who's a real shit. He's a and, real joy, isn't he? Yeah. And, and Chief <laughs> Superintendent Reeford. And they're suspicious because Spears hopped out of a window and only Holman was in the room with him. And then Holman split and didn't hang around. Rather, you know, probably a little bit suspicious. They still don't think the fog's a thing, but they do know that Holman was um, batshit crazy not so long ago and being super aggressive. So they play good cop, bad cop, and we learn a couple more things. We get references to things gone by. We found out that Clara, the little girl, sadly, didn't survive her exposure to the fog. So we know that the fog actually can kill as well as drive never people Never woke insane. up, did she? No, never woke up. Okay, so the police still are taking the fog seriously and the poo-poo everything he tells them. But he tips them off regarding the school bus. All they find out from checking these things out is that there was a fire. They were locked into the gym and 30 school children at least burned to death. So, after the Todger incident... Someone locked the gym and set it all on fire, so they're all dead. Casey, we find, is under sedation at the local hospital. What do you reckon, Phil? Acufairs? Bit of acufairs to deal with the fog people? Very possibly. Not everyone will know what acufairs is. No. Google it. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Phil and I, are, I was in the trade, and Phil is still in the trade, where had, had this happened in our neck of the woods... We might have been on the ward where Casey was brought, fair to say, isn't it? It's a chemical cosh. It is a chemical cosh, yeah. Chapter 8, a chapter of two halves, and this is about Herbert, Lena, and this is possibly the saddest thing in the book for me, and the pigeons. This is a James Herbert classic. Establish characters, draw them quickly and vividly, and I've got to say, it would be easy to be dismissive and say he describes them in broad strokes and, and plays writing down a little bit, but it is really impactful. And the best introduction, the be sorry, the best example is the introduction to Lena. So you've got Herb, or Herbert, a drunken violet pigeon fancier. Even his mate Harry down the pub is very wary of his volatility. Herbert loves his pigeons, but we hear from his narrative that as far as he's concerned, his wife is an acerbic nag and he's not got a lot of time for her is why he likes to spend a lot of time with his pigeons. And he's staggering his way back from the pub, and his wife spots him from the window, and it says, His wife watched him from their bedroom window above the shop. She'd done it so many times before, had spent long, solitary hours gazing out at the busy main road from the darkened room, driven there not to watch for him coming home, but by loneliness. She would study the people walking by, the young couples, the customers she knew, wondering where they were going, what they would do when they got there. The strangers, who were they, what were they doing in this neighbourhood? 
Sometimes her mind would go off into strange, often sordid fantasies at the sight of them. There had been a time when the sight of one coloured person was enough to send her off into a frenzy of fancies, but now she was filled only with angry indignation. She could look directly into the brightly lit upper decks of the double-decker buses that regularly passed by her window. <coughs> Although the glimpses were fleeting, they filled her mind with curiosity and enhanced her loneliness. So that's a, a fairly simple and short paragraph. And then she talks about missing her sons, not seeing enough of her grandchildren, about Herbert driving him away with his belligerence and drinking and not showing them any affection. And okay, this isn't Oscar Wilde, but it is really, really effective and sympathetic. And this is one of the things that Herbert's pretty good at, doing these little pen portraits of people that just for a second make you either strongly dislike them or actually identify with them really, really strongly. So when the shit hits the fan, it has just that little bit more impact. And I, th- I think that's a really nice passage. Yeah. Anyway, the pigeons turn up and peck Herbert to death. That's basically that's basically that bit. Well, he was yeah. disgruntled, wasn't he? Because they haven't come back, and they yeah. always yeah. come back. Yeah, and you have to wonder why they haven't come back. They'd gone to Salisbury, let them free. What might have happened to these pigeons? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Another bit of evidence yeah. that the fog affects animals yeah. as well, because yeah. um, they're doing a good one. And I think is is he on his flat roof or something? And he falls off yeah. his flat roof into, into yeah. the alleyway. It's a great, it's a great bit. This I really enjoyed yeah. it. And it and this is the rats with wings, right? It, yes. it could have been a whole book. The yeah. pigeons. You the know. pigeons. I wonder, Graham. I wonder. We've come across lots of these killer critter books over the years. I wonder if there is one out there about pigeons. There must be. We there will find be, it. There must be, mustn't there? <laughs> there has to be. Everything else has been done. There's yeah. got to be a kid. Peck out his eyes. You expect that. Yeah. There's got to be one. <laughs> but Claude, he was the head pigeon, wasn't he? Claude, that's Claude. right. Claude. <laughs> yeah. 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 Herbert loved Claude. Herbert loved Claude more than his wife. Yeah. And this was his reward. Claude hated him. Claude hated him. <laughs> yeah, he really did. The sad thing was, when he fell, his wife was really, really upset. She was. She suddenly remembers that she loves him, yeah. doesn't she? And she's horrified. Yeah. But she didn't know those pigeons are sat watching her, crying. Oh, that's right. And we never do find out for sure, do we? No. She just um, she she basically leaps out of the window almost to try and save him, and the pigeons are just watching on. Cooing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's the bit there. The one called Claude cooed softly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes we have our next target claude is happy with his work so chapter eight the oh. second part of chapter eight. Oh yeah yeah is about edward smallwood i, fe- well, I really felt for him yeah and this is interesting because it's pretty much a short story about one oppressed timid and shy man's reaction to exposure to the fog this is my my most favourite part of the book. <laughs> Just it was so, so ridiculous. It was yeah. amazing. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Tell us why. Well, his reaction to the fog, the fact that he was just kicking, <laughs> kicking people's bums. Yeah. <laughs> that that was it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, incredible. So Edward is so repressed that the way in which the fog makes him lose it. Is it a butcher or someone from a shop, a shopkeeper or something? He kicks him in the ass. And the shopkeeper goes, what are you doing? And he says, what are you on about? And he turns away again. He kicks him in the ass again. He's like, what are you doing? And he gets to the point where he's running away from him. He's just following him down the street, kicking him up the ass. And then he finds a copper. And the copper says, what's the problem? This guy says, he keeps kicking me in the backside. He's attacking me. And Ed was like, officer, I have no idea what he's talking about. This man has been harassing me. 
<laughs> yeah, he's, he's harassing me, and the police officer takes Edward's side because he looks so trim and well turned out and so sensible. And the copper says, you know, pull yourself together, mate. Turns around, walks away. So Edward kicks him up the ass. <laughs> it's, oh, it's amazing. And he takes <sighs> him in, doesn't he? So he's late for work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we we do find out later on when Holman is travelling through a fog-bound area. We won't spoil it. But we find out that the fog does have very different effects on people. And we get a few examples of that. It doesn't yeah. turn everybody instantly into a, a raging murderer. Yeah, but mm. he did murder his bank manager. Oh, yeah, boss. he did. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. They did kick him out of the bum. <laughs> into, <laughs> into a tiny safe where there was no air and yeah. locked it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. And his, because his secretary said, where is he? He's gone for the day. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I think the last bit is, he says, going home now, I don't feel well. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. He's just yeah. gone. And we yeah. never hear from him again. Yeah. No, we don't, do we? No, because we have to move on to the story of Mavis. Poor Mavis. The young lady who has a relationship with her school friend, Ronnie. Oh. And this <laughs> chapter marks the first incidents in this particular Herbert novel of quivering thighs and soft mounds. Mavis has been in a relationship with her school friend, Ronnie. And it's another reason why I'm sure this book was so popular at junior schools in the late 70s and early 80s. Can I just add, before you go on, yeah. soft mounds and matted triangles. Matted triangles. <laughs> that hid the path to the centre. I mean, matted triangles. Matted triangle. <laughs> does, does she not bathe? Why is it matted? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just just dread, dreadlocks down there. It's... <laughs> Why is it matted? I don't know. <laughs> of all the words to use, all the oh descriptions. Yeah. So we've got we've got Herbert's tendency to write sex scenes that are a bit like readers' letters from Escort magazine or Razzle in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. Good example of why this was popular was certainly with schoolboys, maybe even schoolgirls in the seventies and eighties. Story of love between two women gone awry, written by a middle aged bloke and. It would be interesting to find out if Herbert did anything else because, of course, Guy and Smith wrote things like readers' letters for jazz mags, didn't he? So I remember you saying he yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he did. That was his yeah. bread and butter for a while, wasn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. So I'd be very surprised if Herbert didn't because a lot of this does remind me very much of um, reading readers' letters in a magazine that you found in a skip or a bush when you were 12 years old near yeah, a building site. It's yeah. always the, the black sack in, in by the canal that we used to find. It was a, a, a trove. Yeah. <laughs> what we find, unfortunately, is that despite having this wonderful loving relationship and living together as lovers, these two women, Ronnie meets a bloke, so it's all over. It? After nearly two years. Unlucky Mavis, you cannot compete with the love of a bloke. And, did you, and what she also said is, hopefully you'll find a man too. That's right, she does, yeah. She says, don't <laughs> worry, you'll, you'll find a bloke. It's all right. And, um, yeah, Mavis pleads oh. with her, but Ronnie rather brutally rejects her, even knocking her to the floor. And it says, this was when Mavis knew she had lost. Her sorrow turned to rage when she thought of how she'd been cheated. It was Ronnie who had led her into this way of life, seduced her, how could she now cast her aside as if it meant nothing? A phase she'd gone through. She'd found a normal love and left Mavis unwilling now for any other kind of love. What would she become? A lonely, embittered lesbian. She <laughs> cried out in self-pity. 
Ronnie had walked to the door and opened it. Before she left, she'd said, I'm sorry, Mavis. I'm so sorry, but I have to go. Philip is waiting for me downstairs in his car. He doesn't know about us, and I never want him to. Perhaps someday, when I'm sure of him, I'll tell him. Believe me, Mavis, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't know it ever could. But it's the right thing. I think we were wrong. Forgive me, darling. I hope someday you'll find what I have. When Ronnie had left, Mavis remained in a heap on the floor, weeping bitter tears, shocked by her lover's cruelty, appalled at the fate she saw for herself. She finally recognised their affair for what it was, two women living together in an abnormal relationship. <laughs> she had never accepted the fact that she was homosexual, but somehow Ronnie's leaving took away all the sensitivity of their mutual inclinations and revealed Mavis in her true light. A lesbian. <laughs> Absolutely outrageous. How sensitively written. Yeah, outrageous. But it has to be said, despite everything, the end of this chapter is ace. What this sets up, yeah, what this sets up, I think, is great. So Mavis is now suicidal because she can't cope with the idea of, of losing Ronnie to a bloke. So she heads to Bournemouth to walk into the sea to drown. And she's deep in the freezing water. And after a lot of soul searching, she has second thoughts and thinks, no, I want to live. And she fights her way back towards the beach. I want to live and Ronnie will come back to me when she realises she's wrong. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm we are Mavis. We're, we're, all, we're all rooting for you. She's f trying to fight her way back and it says, as her chest heaved with the effort, her eyes widened uncomprehendingly. There were hundreds, or could it be thousands, of people climbing down the steps to the beach and walking towards her, towards the sea. Was she dreaming? Had her mind become unbalanced because of the distress she'd been through? The people of the town were marching in a solid wall out to the sea, making no sound, staring towards the horizon as though something was beckoning to them. Their faces were white, trance-like, barely human, and there were children among them. Some walked along on their own, seeming to belong to no one. Those who couldn't walk were being carried. Most of the people were in their nightclothes. Some were naked, having risen from their beds, as though answering a call that Mavis neither heard nor saw. She looked behind her, out towards the broadening horizon, but saw only the black, threatening sea. They were advancing on her now and she realised there were thousands of them, pouring from houses, hotels, side streets, in a huge moving mass, their footsteps the only sound they made, and those muffled for the majority were barefooted. Mavis saw an old woman in the front line stumble and fall, and she gasped in horror as the crowd passed over her, trampling her into the sand. Their pace did not slow as they entered the sea, and they advanced in a solid human wall. She looked to the right, then to the left, and saw the wall extended for as far as she could see. The scene, its significance, was too enormous for her to understand. She thought only of getting away from the path of that crushing multitude. She backed away, but the sea was just as threatening. She began to scream at the people as they drew nearer like a child who was to be punished, screaming at an advancing parent. But still they came on, oblivious to her cries, unseeing. She realised her danger and ran towards them in a vain attempt to break through, but they forced her back heedless to her pleas as she strained and beat against them. She managed to push a short path through them, but the great numbers before her were unconquerable, pushing her back into the waiting sea. And yeah, sadly, she gets trampled and drowned by the population of Bournemouth. You see what happens? You see what happens when your relationship breaks down? It's, uh, having been to Bournemouth, that was quite uh, quite an experience to read yeah. that, that part. I thought he was going to say, having been to Bournemouth, I understand why they did it. Fully understand. Do you know, I was reading it thinking, oh, I've never been to Bournemouth, maybe I should go. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, a lot of this is written not too far from me. So there's areas that I... Later on, they talk about ha Hazelmere, which is about 15 miles away. 
All, all this stuff's always I'll, better I'll get... when you know where it's set. Yeah, yeah. And you can yeah. identify with it. But you have to remember that she went there because it was somewhere where her and Ronnie had been together. And yeah. so when they found her drowned body, Ronnie would know that she'd killed herself because of her. Yeah. That was her initials plan, wasn't it? Uh, so it's so, a so guilt trip Ronnie a bit. Yes. Hmm. I've just refreshed my glass with a Madagascar vanilla stout. All right. Which what have right. you got there? Is that is that the the um one from earlier or? No, I've drunk that. This is Madagascar vanilla stout. Uh, uh, a nice, cozy, and sensible five percent. And it says a storm is brewing. A sweet tornado of colliding vanilla hops and black smoky malts clatter together, creating the perfect cyclone of subtle chocolate and coffee flavors. So ditch the umbrella, go outside, and be drenched in this decadent vanilla stout. Okay. Uh, what the fuck does that mean? I don't... Ditch the umbrella, go outside, and be drenched in it. Sounds a bit fucking strange. It's a shame that James Herbert didn't write um, descriptions of vanilla stouts. Yeah. Yeah, it is a shame because it said... Fumble around in your moist cave and draw forth from the matted triangles this de- delicious vanilla stout. Yeah. Matted triangle, seriously. Matted triangle is outrageous. And we get more later as well. Because when we get... Oh, we'll get to it, won't we? Anyway. We will. Let's go. Chapter 11. Daddy issues, I've called Ooh. this one. Yeah. Back on Hampstead Heath, Holman and Barrow sneak into Casey's dad's house and learn a few things. Because Casey's dad checked her out of the hospital and took her home. They're a bit miffed about this. I think Holman's miffed just because her dad took her home and he didn't. But they're also a bit worried because whilst she was super tranquilised, if she comes out of it, what might happen? Well, so, I think he's more worried about that than the dad, to be honest, in this situation. Yeah. Because he knew what happened to him. Yeah, true. But as it turns out, dad's got scissors stuck in his belly and it all gets a bit noncy. <laughs> <laughs> to cut a long story short, he got her home, and he, he explains to Holman he got her home, told her he wasn't really a real dad, and that he had feelings for her. So she turned up in his room a couple of hours later, with her hands behind his back. He thought she wanted a shag, so she stabbed him in the belly with a pair of scissors. I think Holman's a bit sickened by it, really. And, and also, he's very pleased, because it's like, yeah, I knew that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suspected all along. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, we've we've not just got the horror of terrible portrayals of gay women, um, horrible school depredations, and now we've got stepdad trying to non-starter. Okay. Barrow goes downstairs to try and find her, nearly gets scalped by her, and another scrap ensues that goes on for a couple of pages, this time two on one. But Holman does triumph, and he escorts her back to hospital, and Mr Simmons is taken to A&E. Before long, Holman is summoned by the police. And of course, because he's a James Herbert hero, the police now needs his input. And the miraculous rate of his escalation up through the ranks of who he's hobnobbing with begins. So lots of reports have been coming in about happenings in a ragged line between Wiltshire, Dorset and Hampshire. And the news that almost 150,000 people in Bournemouth tried mass drowning themselves. So Reeford briefs him before the meet of the commissioner 
And it turns out when he gets in to meet the Commissioner, well, there's the Minister of Defence, the Secretary of State for the Environment, and the Home Secretary. Certainly going up in the world. And this scene made me wistful about the old days, when Home Secretaries and stuff like this and Bond movies, and the Home Secretary would be a stuffy old relic that still somehow had some sense of authority, even when they're out of depth due to a crazy situation. Not like a rampaging, swivel-eyed moron like we get these days. <coughs> Who is our current Home Secretary? I can't keep up. Well, <laughs> as as of today when we're recording Very this... Very current. Yeah, today when we're recording this, it's all changed again. If we'd have recorded this three hours ago, we could have said that <laughs> it was Soella Braverman up till a week ago, but fortunately they got rid of her. And then it was... Who was it for a week? Grant Shapps, a.k.a. Oh. Yeah. AKA Michael, Michael Green. Michael Fox. Michael Fox. Michael, no, yeah. Michael Green. Michael Green. Michael Green. Yeah. Sebastian Fox. Sebastian Fox, yeah. Yeah, Michael Green, yeah. Yeah. Well, as it happens, uh, he is now the Minister of Justice, as of a couple of hours ago, which is apt, <laughs> isn't it? Very apt. Yeah. yeah. For, for a guy who got kicked off Google for running pyramid schemes online <laughs> and posing with various different identities, now the Minister of Justice. And Suelle Braverman is back. In this scenario right now, for the MOD, it would be Ben Wallace. If this was happening now, if the fog is happening today, yeah. it would be Ben Wallace. <laughs> For the Department of the Environment, it would be Teresa Coffey, oh. as of today. And for Home Secretary, in my notes, I actually write almost Suella Braverman by just a few days, but it is <laughs> Suella Braverman again. <laughs> I'd, I'd written Grant Shapps, a.k.a. Michael <clears throat> Green, a.k.a. Kareen Stockheath, a.k.a. Sebastian <laughs> Fox. But no, it's Suella Braverman again. I'm really sorry that we got rid of Theresa. She yeah. was going to be horrible for the nurses. So, <laughs> yeah, if if this happened now, if this happened today and Holman was having this meeting, he'd be having the meeting with Suella Braverman, Theresa Coffey, uh -huh. Ben Wallace. But fortunately, this is fiction, so we'll probably be okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. From chapter 153. This is a very long chapter and it goes into all sorts of expositional detail about organisations. God knows I got what else. to a point where they started to mix up and I kind of switched off a bit. Yeah. But there is there is just a little bit of interesting information in here. It says, The Commissioner of Police wasted no time in getting in contact with the Home Secretary and arranging an immediate meeting. He'd listened grimly to Holman's story, occasionally interrupting to ask a relevant question. You see, they ask relevant questions in the old days. <laughs> Anyway, but not once voicing a negative opinion. Oh, my God, these people are angels. <laughs> Holman asked the Minister of State for Defence and his own chief, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for the Department of Environment, be present at their meeting with the Home Secretary, remembering the meeting Spears had arranged before his death. Twenty minutes later, he found himself relating his story again in a large oak-panelled room in Whitehall, surrounded by the ministers and their chiefs of staff, having questions fired at him in rapid succession. The Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for the Army angrily rejecting his insinuation that the military in Salisbury might have some answers as to the cause of the fog. The Home Secretary banged his fist sharply on the heavy table before them. Gentlemen, we will not have arguments at this stage. James, I want a full report on your establishment in Salisbury, he ordered the Undersecretary for the Army. I want to know all of the recent experiments carried out there, particularly the Broadmire experiment. Mm. Holman caught the troubled look that passed. Between the two men. Ah, the Broadmire experiment. Military experimentation appears to be the culprit. Military ex How about this then? Military experiment leads to a fog, escaping, going into a town, 
and causing havoc. Where have we seen that since? The Mist. The Mist, written by Stephen King. Stephen yeah. King dug James Herbert. Mm-hmm. I think Stephen King was entirely influenced by the fog. Because yeah. it's basically the same thing, just with monsters instead of genital mutilation. Yeah. That's what I and, thought when I read it. <clears throat> and fog, mist. Mm. Yeah. Very yeah, yeah. close, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, one of the ministers suggests Holman, as a recovered victim of the fog, be studied at Parton Down, the biological and chemical research lab at Salisbury. Because even the Home Secretary is smelling the fish with all this now. This is all particularly dodgy. But news arrives that the fog bank has been spotted by the meteorological office and it's nearing Winchester. Not far from me. Oh, God, Graham. Graham, take care. Keep those windows shut. Yeah. Yeah. Take care and and let us know if we need to get onto Minister Coffee. It's about 30 miles away at this point. We're all right. Okay. Is this when we go to the plane? Yes, chapter 12, Captain Joe. I love this chapter. Yeah, I do as well. (laughs) In summary, airline pilot Captain Joe's wife got frigid, so he went off and had some affairs. (laughs) Because even though they lost a child, it was hard on him as well. Not just hard on her, it was hard on him. And he needed to get some rumpy-pumpy somewhere. So he goes off and has affairs, because they lost a child. But he still loved her. He does acknowledge that, yeah, it probably was hard on her as well. So out of love, he texts to the new forest for a getaway to try and rekindle the passion. But they get caught in a fog, and she tells him she's leaving him. So next day, he's flying. She's leaving him, and she's met someone else. She's met someone else. That's right. Is, Don't is he called Kevin? Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Oh, I hope, I hope we haven't got any listeners called Kevin. You've just been oh, awful yes. to him. No, it's not the name. <laughs> just a no, sentiment. What? <laughs> yeah. Poor yeah. Kevin. She's off to shack up with Kevin. And next day, Joe is taking off in his 747 on his flight. And much to his co pilot's dismay, he flies their 747 into the post office tower in London, causing because, because mass his destruction. Wife said that's where Kevin works. Oh, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Well, ah, you say I forget all this shit already. Because I was thinking, why not Buckingham Palace? Kevin didn't work in Buckingham Palace. No, no. But the last bit on this, Terry thought he heard him say something. It sounded like, good morning, Kevin. (laughs) That's a great line, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's a T-shirt. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. That... To be honest, maybe that's maybe we need to get that as a T-shirt. A seven four seven crashing into post office yes. tower with "Good morning, Kevin" below it. That's, I don't I, think it would be seen as being very PC. I might commission that from Simon Perrins. It's niche, though, isn't it? Some people yeah. would recognise that as the fog. Yes, very yeah. niche. Yeah, Simon, if you're listening, let's have a conversation. I'll, I'll chip in, Andy. Yes, we go halves. Yes, let's do it. Let's get this done. <laughs> And of course, uh, for for modern listeners, Post Office Tower is now BT Tower, is it? It's BT. Yeah. That's the same yeah. tower, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. BT Tower. Yeah. Which is uh, privately owned. Yeah, and it's already been brought down once by a giant cat, hasn't it? On the goodies. <laughs> the goodies, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Post Office Tower in the nineteen seventies was was a target for quite a lot of anger from Joe and a giant pussy cat. 
So not only does he kill Kevin and all his workmates, but a plane full of people. Plane full of people and people all over um, the area. Yep. But we don't know if Kevin was actually there. That's true. We just know he, he, he that was his workplace. That would be hard on Joe if he had a sick day, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, he's already had his brains blown out by one of the co-pilots. Well, that's true. Yeah. That was t- that was Terry, I think. That was yeah. Terry, yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. he the engineer? Engineer. Yeah. I think the co-pilot was unconscious or... Yeah, they had a fight, didn't he? And he knocked yeah. him out. Because mm. obviously yeah. all the people have got extra strength, haven't they, when, yeah. the, when it takes them. The mania kicks in. The fog mania. So, unfortunately, we never do find out if Kevin took a sickie. We just have to no. assume that he was there. Good morning, Kevin! <laughs> yeah. So, Chapter 13, Holman goes to London. As they're now the most important people to the testing bots, Holman picks Casey up from the hospital with Barrow as his escort in the ambulance, and Barrow is still being a prick. But in London, they become aware of the catastrophe at the post office tower. And the, there are fires all around it. It's it's carnage. And they arrive at a super secret research joint under Alexander Fleming House to meet the chief medical officer, Janet Halstead. Can I say before you carry on and, you and do it all, I read this first and I went upstairs and went, oh my God. I've been re I was really enjoying it. And I, I accepted this is James Herbert, and then I read this bit, and I'm like, what? Let's find out, shall we, what you're <laughs> talking about. Oh, let's have a look. <laughs> so, says, they entered a lift. Casey, having been taken through a more private entrance to the rear of a building. A plump, middle-aged woman wearing a white coat greeted them when the doors opened again. She stepped forward and shook Holman's hand without waiting for an introduction. You must be Mr. Holman, she said, smiling. I've been reading about you from your file your department sent me. Your photograph doesn't do you justice. Holman smiled back, weakly, completely disarmed. The chief medical officer spoke up. This is Mrs Janet Halstead. I'll leave it to you then, Jan. She nodded and asked Holman and Barra to follow her as the lift doors closed on the grinning Ministry of Health man. This was the principal medical officer? Holman couldn't help but smile. She was certainly sweet, but she looked no brighter than the average housewife. Fucking hell. The day would prove her to be otherwise. Seriously. (laughs) I still can't believe he wrote it. Incredible. I I read that and I was just like, what's this cop? I'd love to know who who his editor was. (laughs) (laughs) There's uh, there's a couple of things there. One thing that made me laugh is like, he instantly has a burner for her because she compliments him. And he's like, oh, ooh. And then it's like, she she looks just like an average bird. But she's no brighter than the average. No brighter than the average bird. Yeah. So the housewives are not very bright. Yeah. No, no, she looks she looks no brighter. The day. Oh my god. The day would prove her to be otherwise. But they'd only had and hello, you look a bit different from your photo. photo. They hadn't even had a full conversation at that point. She, she is the principal medical officer? He's got this massive burner for her, particularly after she says, call me Jan. And, uh, but it does say she has a disarming smile. So, you know, fair enough, I suppose. And also, she gets him breakfast. <laughs> before What's the, his positives? Before the tests, she gets him breakfast, then he goes and has a kip. It's like the best of all worlds for him. 
isn't yeah, it? But but doesn't she say you can't eat too much because we've got to give you loads of drugs later or something? Oh yeah, but you <laughs> you you can you can give her a pass for that, can't you? you can give she's her got to be prodded and pro poked and tested and X-rayed and yeah, everything. there's a there's a good list, isn't there? That just goes on and on. <laughs> he has a kit, and then when he wakes up, him and Barra decide it's time they got on because Barra's been a real a real prick. He's been yanking his chain. Constantly, hasn't he? We're it's not been, really. It's been a bit of a knob, hasn't he? Yeah, we've not mentioned that, have we? When when Barra and Reeford were being good cop, bad cop, Barra was bad cop, and he's carried on being bad cop, even though he's been his escort. He's still continued to be a niggly prick, e- even after the fight with Casey. He's carried on being a niggly prick. But well, at this, this point, at the start, it was because he didn't believe him. Yeah. And then after what happened with Casey, even though he believed it, yeah, he just he just felt his duty to be bodyguard was beneath him. But now we know he's just a dickhead. But that said, <laughs> he and Barra do decide to get on, as Barra is now is effectively his bodyguard. As they're having this conversation, Barra gives him some exposition, and he finds that it's all being taken very seriously now. The public are getting a bit hysterical about it, so they're giving him all sorts of guff, like it's blown in from the sea or stuff like that. The plane crash killed thousands. They've been monitoring the fog from helicopters, and it's growing, and it's now a mile and a half wide. And the part and down lot are super twitchy and no longer cooperating, insisting they have to talk to their minister. Uh, dodgy fuckers. I mean, the plane took out thousands, but but how many was in Bournemouth? Hold on. 148,820. Yeah. So the casualty count is rising, isn't it? It's rising quite quite steeply. Yeah. Anyway, Janet gets in more grub. Bless her. (laughs) She's got a role. She's got a role. Chapter 14, and this this is another one with a hell of a lot of exposition. And Holman gets to sit in on a cabinet meeting. And we won't do a rundown of what these fuckers would be if this was today. But (laughs) we get a massive exposition dump. And mostly it's told by German scientist Hermann Riker. I have to say, on the audio book, I forget the the person who did the narration. He did a very good... (laughs) Good, good a very accent. Good, a very good ex-Nazi scientist <laughs> accent. Yeah, exactly that. Maybe I should um, do a recording just for the uh, the podcast if I can get it to you in time. Yeah, do so. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Because at one point I was thinking when I was reading, it, I was thinking, shall I read some of this out? Try try and do like a, a an ex-Nazi scientist <laughs> accent. Um, but then I just thought, no, I'll just end up sounding like <laughs> Lieutenant Gruber from Alala or something. It'll be an absolute yeah, yeah. disaster. Hair flick uh, or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Riker wasn't the one who created this. It was a different. Scientist. He wasn't. That's right. No. But this this whole German scientist popping up thing in the nineteen seventies is a massive genre trope from the time, isn't yeah. it? It pops up in all sorts of things. The German scientist probably whisked out of Germany at the end of the war to help with a a research campaign or something like that. It's in it's in loads of films. Anyway, we get a, a massive techno babble exposition dump for pages and pages. But what we find is that a scientist called Broadmire mutated a mycoplasma that causes brain changes. He effectively created his own virulent disease. He caught his own disease, killed a fellow scientist, and then burned all his notes before killing himself. The army buried the remaining samples in a lead box deep underground 15 years ago. Someone says, what, under the village? They say, no, 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 two miles away. 
two miles away from the village. And then, unfortunately, they did underground explosive tests on Salisbury <laughs> Plain, which were more powerful than they expected, and it broke open the sealed lead container because they were far too powerful, and it escaped. That's what caused the earthquake, and the lead casket being broke open was a side effect, and that's released the mycoplasma. So we know that the fog is growing, and it has a mycoplasmic centre, a core, and that's the thing, the glowing thing that Casey spotted. Attempts to break it down have failed. They've been dropping all sorts of chemicals on it and other bits and pieces. They've tried four different things, none of them work. But they need a sample from the core, and Holman is immune. So Holman is the man. Holman's the only guy they have who they now believe is immune because once you've got it and you've recovered, you can't get affected again. So Holman is now the most important man in Britain. I think it's also important to know what happened to Broadmire because if that happened to everyone else, there's not going to be many people left on the planet, is there? That's right. So what they need to do, <clears throat> Holman finds out, is they want to send him into the fog, and they send him into the fog in Chapter 15, to go into the fog in Winchester find the mycoplasmic core and take a sample with a techno hoover. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's not how it was described, is it? Well, it's just pretty, probably pretty much. That's, that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Have you been to Winchester Cathedral? Never. I've been there. This is this is all, for me, I was just like, this is it. I've been yeah. to Winchester. It's, it's not been that foggy. It's been rainy, but, you know. So to, to cut a very long story short because we're only on chapter 15 out of 22. The, the core is in Winchester Cathedral, but it doesn't go according to plan, and he almost comes a cropper, care of some looters that thought old gas masks would protect him, so they didn't evacuate. They stayed in Winchester with old World War II gas masks on. Didn't work. He managed to get away from a couple of them. He kills a couple, and then the last one tries to bury him alive in the, in the church graveyard. But fortunately, the fog moves on, and a helicopter spots some wacky bloke with a mask on trying to bury someone, and it's Holman. So Holman does get away with it. But, chapter 16, back in London, Riker is very disappointed at Holman's failure. But they muse on the nature of the mycoplasmic core and what potentially its driving force may be. What's its motivation? Andy, are you going yeah. to do, the, are you going to do the German accent? Or? Oh, good Lord, I don't think so. <laughs> Well, let's let's find out. I've only had two beers, so, you know, we'll see. I think also, going back to Holman, I think he was disturbed by being in the church because he felt the presence of, not of the centre, but the closer he got to it, the more disturbed he got. Mm. Even right. though he seems immune, the closer he gets, yeah. it seems to impact on him, doesn't it? And, the, and there's an interesting bit later on about that, isn't there? There is. This is the first time we get a hint that there's some kind of draw yeah. to, to, the, to the, the mycoplasmic car. It's never really paid off, that, I don't think. But this is the first time it's mentioned. And, it, and it's a shame, really, because it's quite obvious he feels it. And as, as you say, Graham, later <clears throat> on, he feels more of a draw. But it's obviously everybody who hasn't been through it like him, they're just instantly in that power. Yeah. Whereas he has to fight it at times, yeah, doesn't yeah. it, to stay clear of it. To not go back into back into the... So they're mews on the nature of the core. And it says, Holman had discussed with Riker the fact that the mutated microplasma had been trapped inside the cathedral. Or had it taken shelter? Was it feasible? Was it remotely possible? 
that the mutation had some sort of driving force. Could it have, Holman had hesitated to say, could it have intelligence? After all, it was a parasite that fed on the brain. Professor Riker had laughed, but it was without humour. Every living thing has some driving force, Mr. Holman. Even plant life has some intelligence. It's a matter of degree. But to suggest this organism has a will? A brain? It has a motivation for survival, perhaps. Just as a flower reaches towards the sun, but a mind of its own? No, Mr. Holman. Don't let your harrowing experience this morning send you into the realms of fantasy. This mycoplasma does not control the fog. When the wind took the protective cloud away, the mycoplasma had to go too. Wrapped in its centre, caged by its own protection. It exercised no power over its cloak of fog. It gives no direction. It is a mindless, organic thing. Incapable of action by thought. That was fucking terrible, by the way. Yeah. It, it was, it was, I think you could get away with some audibles on that. <laughs> you know what? It's the one and only time, probably outside a role playing game, where I'll ever try and carry something like that off. But anyway, moving on from that horror, that horror accent, the fog is drifting towards Hazelmere. Which is very close to me now. We're getting, we're getting very close. Yeah. I got scared at this point. Hazelmere yeah. is just down the road. Yeah. And the army are evacuating oh. everywhere in its path. And Casey is aware concern. Hooray! Casey's all right. Have they been, have been giving her his blood or something? It was a, I think it was a complicated procedure of blood transfusion and, or, and also sort of like chemotherapy type thing or radiotherapy. That's right, yes. yes. <clears throat> but they don't want to give too much and yeah. totally make her a cabbage. Yeah. Uh, it does say a cabbage. I think that is the term. <laughs> you know, we, we we don't want to exclude other forms of vegetation. No, we don't. So they want Holman to try again. Casey isn't keen. Holman kissed Casey and promised to return as soon as he was allowed. Casey wanted to tell him not to go back to the fog, to stay nearby, to take her away as soon as she was strong enough. But she knew her words would be wasted and she knew the lives of many others depended on him. Despite all the technological advances of science, it seems survival still depended on the action of a man. One man. <laughs> oh, we know it's Holman, of course. So he grabs a kip. Barrow wakes him up. It's time. But the fog, it's gone. What? So the fog has disappeared. Chapter 17. Oof. Soldiers. So chapter 17 is uh, our first indication that the fog is hiding in a tunnel. And it's been a while since we've had a long setup and a gruesome death. And three soldiers found out the fog is hiding in a railway tunnel. And they do come a cropper. But, in all honesty, this chapter is a bit of a letdown. Because James Herbert has been winding us up with horrific, terrible narratives and descriptions. And this one is pretty staid. Frankly, one of the soldiers shoots his mates. I, I guess for me on, on this chapter, it was more about the um, that sort of weird bullying of someone who's in should be in power, mm. and then the other the other two are just taking the piss out of him constantly uh... to the point where he can't even urinate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he, can't, he can't pee because they're watching him. Oh, yeah, bullies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but it was it was a quite a long chapter. 
that not much happened. <laughs> yeah, the, the the payoff's not great, is it? Is is no. le- led us to expect more by yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I would prefer more pages of that that chap kicking that guy down the road. <laughs> yeah, kicking kick, kicking man in pants. That's what we need. Yeah. That's what we need. So yeah, that's that's a little bit disappointing, but it's okay because chapter eighteen makes up for it because the fog's disappeared. Hillman takes Casey home for Rumpy Pumpy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So many descriptions for lady parts in this chapter. Bloke parts, penis. Always just penis. Lady parts, well, what do we get? Warm cavern. We've already mentioned warm cavern. Moist cave, isn't it? Moist, moist, cave. moist cave. We get tidy forest, which differentiates a nice clean girl from a lesbian in James Herbert's mind. Because oh, Ka- yeah, because Casey has a tidy forest. The lesbian has a matted forest. A matted triangle. Matted triangle. Matted triangle. <laughs> Good God. How to differentiate your women. Matted triangle versus tidy forest. Oh, and of course, we also get aroused lubricity. <laughs> Can I just ask? I don't want to sound stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've just... <laughs> but... <laughs> it's... <laughs> I've got to ask this bit really disturbed me is Peter's rose quivering to meet her parted lips and suddenly it was engulfed in a warm cavern a soft entrance concealing a sharp ridge of teeth yeah that's her mouth. Oh. oh, okay, okay. It's just, it's the. It's oh, were you thinking she had teeth in her fanny? Well, I just. <laughs> oh dear. It it. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, it's not that clear because after him, his interior contained a silky, ever-moving animal that smothered in 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 it in its welcome. It's just like what? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, <clears throat> actually, I've yeah, actually, I've carried on. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. I have to say, I've not read any Guy and Smith's porn. I don't know if it's any better than this. Or any worse than this. I struggle to think it could be any worse, to be honest. One thing in Guy and Smith's favour is he would probably do this in a paragraph, not four pages. This is is like a four-page long reader's letter. And, yeah, I will never, ever, ever get over aroused lubricity. It's just fucking, it's just incredible. What does Absolutely. it mean? It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. Oh dear. Anyway, uh, uh, there there are thigh thighs. There are there well. are thighs referenced as well. I'm sure like, some of them are quivering. Like you say, a tidy forest of hair. Yeah. It's just, it just reflects those. Yeah. This is mid mid seventies. Forests yeah. were the rage, right? That's what this is what you got. To make it even better. Once they've finished shagging, she asks him why her nickname is Casey. 
And just before they realise the fog's outside, <laughs> he let slip that it was his nickname for his dog when he was a kid. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. But it's to do with her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> the way she looks at him. Yeah, it's not her wet nose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but this is after she's pleasured him yeah. in many ways. Fucking hell. But anyway, yeah, so her nickname is the same nickname he gave his dog when he was a kid. And then they find out the fog's outside and it's in London. Oh, crikey. Yeah, let's never talk of that sex scene again. Let's all agree. <laughs> let's, ne- let's never talk of it again. So we get a quick fire series of vignettes that follow as Londoners get dosed upon the fog. There's some nice stuff here. There's like a woman and her cats. What we don't find out is the result. It's just like an introduction. So that I think there's a security guard at a bank or something. There's a woman, old woman and her cats. Some other bits and pieces. And we'll come back to some of these later on. But we also get little skits of Reeford and Barrow oh. in their homes being exposed to the fog. And we get some really nice descriptions of signal fires on the outskirts being engulfed by the gloom as it rolls in. Really, really visual and really good. Cool chapter. Cool chapter! With the exception of the five pages of sex. Yeah. Yeah, and there's one or two other people who are affected by it as well in this, isn't there? Yeah. The security guard and the assistant to one of the ministers. And... Yeah. Cat lady. Yeah. Cat lady. Oh, yeah, yeah cat lady. Poor cat lady. Oh, yeah. no, no. No, 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 no. She used to collect these poor cats and give them for experiments, this poor cat lady. Oh, right. Well, she gets comeuppance then. Absolutely. Poor, horrible cat lady. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 19, The Devastation Vehicle. Great name for what is effectively a car. Casey stays at his place and they agree that because the fog's in London, she'd better just lock herself in his bedroom. Good luck, love. Um, Holman, on the other hand, important dude, so he's got to go on a government mission to a secret location in The Devastation Vehicle. Now, Casey is now recovered from the fog, which means that Casey... (laughs) is just as important as Holman is, and actually, in any modern story, would now become an equally important protagonist. Yeah. But he just locks her in his bedroom and says, stay here, love. Yeah. yeah. They could have both gone out, couldn't they? They could, yeah. 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 But first, before he gets to the devastation vehicle, he's got to get to <laughs> Westminster Bridge to meet it, because he's, he's been on the blower to, uh, to the powers that be, and he's got a journey there through fog-bound London. And these scenes are actually quite cool. The journey through Fogbound London, it's pretty cool. It's cinematic. I do love these kind of scenes, like travelling through a devastated city. They're always good in movies. Stuff like the Day of the Triffids, the Omega Man, and Life Force. you can picture it as well, can't you? Yeah, you can, really strongly. And a lot of this really reminds me of Life Force, the Toby Hooper film, which is one of my favourite 80s films, which is based on a Colin Wilson novel called The Space Vampires. And we'll come back to this a bit later. But Life Force, for the first half of it, or two-thirds of it, is a couple of, an astronaut and a British SAS man trying to track down uh, a space vampire that they brought back from Haley's Comet because she's escaped from a research lab in London and she's causing havoc by infecting people. And... It's a really cool film. It's a schlocky film, but it's a cool film. It's a weird combination of Quatermass, Doctor Who, a zombie movie. It's got all sorts of shit going on. And apparently Toby Hooper was fucking cooked up to the eyeballs at the point when he was making this film. And it really shows. It's so it's so off the wall in a lot of places. But all these London scenes remind me a lot of, of Life Force, the London scenes in Life Force. And it's also a bit like uh, The Crazes, 
the George Romero mm. film, yeah, yeah. which was uh, later remade. But anyway, uh, so there's all these encounters with all these all these kind of slightly crazy people. There are people just standing at bus stops waiting for buses, looking puzzled. There are people, there's a guy running down the street with a sword. There are people openly copulating in the street. It's all a bit, all a bit crazy. And the um, saffron robes. The saffron robes, yeah, that's what we're getting. Saffron robes. Like yeah. the Harry Krishnas or whatever they are. So he has this Graham fa- mentioned this earlier, didn't you? Yeah, he has this final encounter with these Harry Krishnas, and he gets <laughs> pu- pulled into this circle to sit with them. And one of them's going, "Oh, join us, brother! I'll fucking break your back." <laughs> no, it's all brilliant. Everything's really cool. If you run away, I'll kill you. And it's just like this guy just being really schizoid. This is freaking him out a little bit. So he decides, "I've got to get out of here." Has a bit of a punch up. Gets away, and all these Harry Krishnas are chasing him through the fog through the streets of London, <laughs> all screaming for his blood. But Fortunately, he finds the devastation vehicle by Westminster Bridge, and the driver's like, "Hey, up! There's trouble here!" So he just runs all the Harry Krishnas over. <laughs> yeah, but they did brilliant. say, "Today is your beginning, and to begin, you must first die." <laughs> <That's right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the driver of the devastation vehicle, Mason, and here's a really disappointing <clears throat> thing: is that Mason, who was a nice guy, who was all suited and booted who's there to meet him, to take him to a secret government establishment so he can get his orders. Really lovely fella, saves his life, and says, oh yeah, this is like a normal scout car that's been heavily lined with lead and kitted out with all this equipment. You'll find out why it's called the Devastation Vehicle later. We never find out why the (laughs) Devastation Vehicle is called the Devastation Vehicle. There are two of them, potentially three, come up in the last few chapters, Mason's promise that we find out why they're called devastation vehicles yeah. is never followed through on. One, one gets hit hit by a bus and destroyed, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. True. yeah. But before that happens, they make it to the secret destination, which is a vast government fallout shelter. So now it's hobnobbing, not only with the cabinet, but with the prime minister. And he gets this mission from the PM, so him and Mason head out again. And the chapter continues to be really cool with Carnage in London. But the life force connection here is strong as well because you've got the armoured car travelling through chaos and Carnage running people over, massive crowds of naked people copulating. Okay, that doesn't happen in life force. Others just sitting and looking dazed. It's really vivid imagery. But there's a bit in life force where they go and see the Prime Minister. Uh, these scenes were in the book, Space <coughs> Vampires. I think the people who wrote the scripts for Space Vampires, it was two thirds Space Vampires, one third The Fog particularly the London stuff at the end, mm. because there's there's even a passage. He heard over the speaker a voice telling Mason that people were fleeing from the town in their thousands. Large internment camps had been set up and police and troops from all over the country had surrounded London with blockades and were trying to hold everyone who was leaving, imprisoning them for their own protection. It was an impossible task, of course, to save everyone. But fortunately, most of those that had fled were unaffected as yet by the disease and willingly turned themselves over to the authorities in the hope they would be protected when the madness struck them. Helicopters above the cloud had reported that the fog seemed thickest around the river and thickest of all around the dockside area past the Tower of London. Although it had spread further, they confirmed that it did seem to be thinning, particularly on its outer fringes. They could also see the glow of many large fires over London. There's a scene in Life Force where they're in a a helicopter heading back to London and the pilot gets a message from the ground saying that there are internment camps set up on the other side of the river to contain people who are escaping from London. And the visual of the fires over London and helicopters flying above it, those two paragraphs, 90% 
or that scene in Life Force. Crazy. Right down to the message coming over the radio, telling them about it. So I think the people who wrote the script for Life Force absolutely had read The Fog, because it's it's just too ridiculously similar to be a coincidence. When I finally read the Colin Wilson novel that Life Force was based on, I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't have all that stuff in it. The core of the story about the vampires <coughs> in a ship in Haley's Comet is all there, and the astronauts and the characters are the same, it's all there, but all of the London chaos is all straight off the pages of the fog. And then they had that scene, didn't they, where people started throwing themselves into the fire, people would cheer until the next one did. Holman really wanted to intervene, but mm. Mason was like, we have our orders, we have to do what we need to do. There are a couple of moments at the... One is when there are burning vehicles and the crowd are all standing around taking it in turns to run and jump in the fire and everybody cheers. And that's the point where Mason says, no, we can't interfere. But then there's a moment where they see a girl in a doorway being menaced by two men with a cocks out. Oh, gosh, yeah. So Holman takes matters into his own hands and just mounts the pavement and runs them over. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's also the, the pigeons at Trafalgar Square. Sinister fuckers. Wonder if Claude's there. Uh, Claude, Claude's in charge. Yeah. Is it? Is it the centre of it all? Cooing softly. Yeah. Again, it's it's all good stuff. The continue the journey through London. They're being guided by a helicopter that's tracking the mycoplasmic core, and they're headed for the East End docks when they hear it's been lost somehow. And then a double decker bus smashes into them, turns over the devastation vehicle. Oh no. This is a really, really, really long chapter, and it goes on forever. But James Herbert loves descriptions of bad things, and he really just indulges himself for pages. There is so much flavour in here. It's almost ridiculous. It's, it's breathless, and it doesn't pause. It's just terrible scene upon terrible scene upon terrible scene. Incredible, really. Yeah, because you've got people who kill each other, people who kill themselves, all the fornication that's going on. And like yeah. you say, those two... Two blokes who were descending on a 15-year-old girl. There's... Yeah, and the, the crowd of naked people they see copulating. I think the, yeah. the comment that some of them are in the 60s and some of them are... Barely adults. Barely adults, but basically they mean children. Children. It does go on forever, this chapter, but it is, it's all strong, vivid, unpleasant stuff, It's which is James Herbert's strength yeah. at the end of the day, isn't it? And this is the chapter where he sort of brings back the Catwoman... That's right. A security guard. Yeah. And, and you kind of finish those bits off, doesn't he? Yeah. We get all these little things capped off. So we find out that Cat Lady has been eaten by her cats. Rightly so. Yeah. There was a guy mentioned earlier on who was so panicked by what was going on, he basically gives all of his family an overdose in the hope... Oh, gosh. In the hope that someone will knock after them and they'll sleep through it and they'll be saved. He gave them all a lot of sleeping tablets. Gave them all six sleeping tablets each. Yeah. yeah. And so we find out a little bit what's happening there. It says, McClellan and his family slept soundly. Outside his house in the normally quiet Wimbledon Street where he lived was pandemonium. His neighbours were in combat, using bottles, perkers, anything that came to hand, scratching at each other's eyes, tearing at each other's throats. They kicked, they punched, they pulled the clothes from one another. No one knew why, and no one bothered to ask themselves. They were too far gone with the madness. McClellan was lucky, for they ignored the sign he'd left on his doorstep, which said, Please help. Have given family overdose to keep from harm. Please help. He knew when he chalked the message on his child's toy blackboard it was a slim chance, but there had been little choice anywhere. 
better to die in the sleep than at the mercy of a dreadful madness. So far, they'd been left undisturbed, and the neighbours were too intent on killing each other to break in and search them out. They slept on. That's pretty dark. Yeah. Well, I, I like the fact that you don't know what happens no. to them. No, and we never hear from them again. Oh. Yeah. No. We just we just don't know. It's all left to the imagination. But you've got the little bit about Barrow waking up. Yeah. First of all, we've got Ira Irma Bidmead, the old woman who had loved cats yet sold their bodies for vivisection, was already dead. That's right. The cats she'd fed and housed still gnawed away at her cold flesh, mixed with bits of material from the garments she'd worn. They had clawed and scratched at her eyes first, then when she'd been blinded and weakened, they'd sat on her face and smothered her. When her feeble struggles had ceased, they'd begun to eat her. Now they were full, eating out of greed, not hunger, but later they would go out and see younger, more tender flesh. It wouldn't be hard to find. <laughs> uh, they need a book on the cats. Yeah. And then you have the bit about, is it Refford? Refford, you... yeah. yeah. Chief Superintendent Refford laughed at the rantings of his wife. He'd locked her in a bedroom cupboard and sat at the end of the bed watching the door as it bulged when she tried to force it open from inside. Her moans had a peculiar rasping turn to them. For earlier that morning, he'd climbed the stairs from the kitchen holding a kettle full of boiling water in one hand. He'd stood over his wife and poured the contents of the kettle into her upturned open mouth. Her snoring had always sickened him. Then, as she'd screamed and screamed, he'd bundled her up in the bedclothes and locked her away in the cupboard. Soon now, her struggles would grow weaker and he would let her out. She would see the joke when he explained it to her, and if she didn't, if she began to nag at him, like she had in the past, well, he'd show her the kitchen knife he held in his lap. He'd seen what you could do to a person with a kitchen knife. He'd seen many pictures of victims at the yard. They were funny, those pictures. Fascinating what you could do to a human face. You could make the lips smile permanently if you wanted to. He would show her when he let her out, if she whined at him. He waited patiently, smiling at the cupboard door. Yeah, oh dear, Chief bit... Superintendent Reeford. And he was such a lovely guy. <laughs> yeah, he was. The, he was the nice copper, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. We found out a little bit about Barra. I won't read the Barra bit, but Barra basically gets up, tidies himself up, puts a tie on, straightens himself out, combs his hair, goes into his little collection of awful weapons that he calls his black museum, <laughs> and picks one out. That's the last we hear of Barra for a while. He put on his best suit as well. Yeah, yeah. The um, the reference of a black museum is that from something else, or I think Scotland Yard has a black museum, right? Of yeah. things like you know murder weapons from infamous crimes and things yeah. like that. I'm pretty sure where that originates from. And then we get a brief insight into the bus driver that rammed the devastation vehicle. So we get a nice little joining of the circle there, yeah. in time for chapter twenty, where Holman comes around from the crash but the occupants of the bus ensure things go from bad to worse. And uh, sadly, poor Mason comes a cropper, unfortunately, for the lad. Pretty rough on Mason, but he essentially gets kicked to death by the bus driver and much of the crowd. And Holman manages to escape, largely because he almost gets run over by a Ford Anglia. And uh, after this encounter with a Ford Anglia and its driver, who seems at first to be sane, that turns into a pretty horrific encounter as well. <laughs> Because the the uh, the car driver saying everybody else is mad. This is crazy. My wife went mad. And as the driver, this goes on for a couple of pages. And then uh, as the driver is saying, he says, uh, "I think I think Holman says something like, you know, did you leave your wife behind?" He says, "Oh no, she's in the back." And he turns and looks around. There's a headless corpse <laughs> on the back seat, and the driver has her head 
between his legs in the footwell <laughs> of the car and he shows him it. So big struggle, boots the driver out, manages to take control of the Ford Anglia, ends up in the mouth of the Blackwell Tunnel. Almost by accident, as a result, he figures out, due to that sense of magnetism and almost being hypnotically drawn to it, he realises that the core is in the Blackwell Tunnel. He manages, contacts HQ, and he gets a bunch of soldiers and the third devastation vehicle to meet him with explosives, another techno-hoover, and Riker comes along as well. And we then get a very eventful series of incidents where they attempt to... They get a sample of the car, then they attempt to trap it in the tunnel so they can blow it up. But the army are idiots, so they blow a hole in the roof. The fog escapes out of it. So Colonel Peters and Professor Riker chase it, and quite appropriately and conveniently, the car hides between two gas towers. Before we get to that point, there's a moment in the tunnel where Holman is drawn to the core, and Riker drags him back, and Holman's saying, you shouldn't get so close because the suit won't protect you. Yeah. But... Uh, there, there was that moment where um, Holman was drawn into it for some that's reason. Right. And and that's where you indicated earlier, where he gets drawn, he's always drawn to it. But again, there's no payoff. No. There's no payoff. <laughs> it, it, it happens again. Riker pulls him back. We don't really know what it's about. No. Doesn't pay We're off. We're never told. No. Never told. No. So rather conveniently, the car hides between two gas towers. Yeah. Gas towers. What? We don't even have gas towers anymore, do we? The Tories sold them all off. But gas towers, <laughs> gasometers, whatever you want to call them. Once upon a time, we would have had these things with huge gas storage tanks. Yeah. I thought at this point, I thought they were going to capture it yeah. in the gasometer. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they don't. They just blow it up. <laughs> they just blow it up. It hides between, it, it conveniently and rather helpfully hides between two gas towers. Colonel Peters and Riker sacrifice themselves to blow it up. But they did get a sample earlier, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They got the sample in the tunnels. Yeah. So so they have the sample. The Techno Hoover is there. It's got the sample. Holman, all bent up and crispy, manages to get back to HQ, gets some celebratory snogs off Janet Halstead, who peppers his face with kisses. Bless her. And then he heads home to Casey. He gets a leather jacket. He does. He, he ties himself up and borrows a leather jacket and then drives home across London. And he does reference that it's still mental driving across London, but he doesn't go into any detail. And he gets home and Casey's there. He's had some snogs off Janet Halstead, so he's having a pretty good time. And they all live happily ever after. Oh, except, well, we found out where Barrow went. Barrow was waiting for him. Barrow's been hammering on the door to try and get in. So we get a five-page long fight with Bloody Barrow for the climax of the book. Herbert can't resist getting some attempted sexual assault and thigh-struck small breast references in as Casey gets her shirt torn, and then they kill him and go to bed at the end. (laughs) Of the fog. (laughs) Who's first with their thoughts on the fog? Well, last line, he closed the door behind him. (laughs) Yeah, and retreated into... I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to say it. No, don't even Let's say it. Let's never speak of it again. <laughs> so thoughts on the fog, Graham? It could have been shorter. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's there's elements in there that I wish were longer. Mm. <laughs> there's bits in there, like the, the, the bit with the, the sort of 
bank clerk who was kicking the people down the street. I just thought that was brilliant. I yeah. just thought that was amazing. Yeah. You know, that there's elements that I just thought could have been expanded on. I think quite often with Herbert that he gets these moments where you just think it, he could go further with those bits, but then he he doesn't. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because l- later on, his books have a third of the ideas. Yeah, that that his early books have, but they're that they're more developed. Yeah, I think at this point he's just is just a, an absolute melting pot of ideas, and he needed a good editor at this point because the whole stuff with the devastation vehicle is you've got about twelve pages of them travelling through London to get to the HQ to have more pages of travelling through London. That that could have been rationalised and broken down a little bit, and and yeah. you know, yes, lots of the content is horrific and good and interesting and, and vivid and evocative, but yeah, you could you could really condense that a little bit, and then it it would have been interesting to know more about um I don't know for example Summers and Hodges yeah. and have them to yeah. be characters who persisted for a while. You know, maybe even have some kind of like chance of redemption because his protagonist is, in his eyes, even though we can pick him apart for being a dickhead, his protagonist in his eyes are flawless from start to finish. And there's no arc. No. Nobody really gets any development. Nobody gets a chance to redeem themselves. Okay, probably maybe it's a surprise that the ex Nazi scientist Riker turns out to be the hero who actually saves London and saves the country by following it and blowing it up. Yeah, and saves Holman. So, so actually, Holman doesn't save the day in this. It's Riker and Colonel Peters who actually save the day off screen. <laughs> off screen. He just hears them doing it on a radio. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, thoughts on the fog? So I agree the bits over London were very long and the meeting, because they didn't reduce the words, they wrote the Home Secretary... The department every time they wrote it out in full yeah. i got really bored yeah. with those bits yeah but there, there is like, one of those scenes where the cabinet are in it where there is so much exposition and so much organizational stuff for pages and pages yeah, yeah. and and it was boring those bits but as graham said the little stories in between i'd like to have known a bit more fascinating yeah you know the cat woman as horrible as she was they could have put a bit more in with her and one or two others, like the pilot. It just there was room for but then again, like you say, it was quite a long book in the end. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. there was bits of it I really enjoyed. I mean, I knew when I started this is James Herbert and that helped yeah. me until <laughs> until he described Janet. I really <laughs> like Janet, by the way, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Janet should have been a more active protagonist. Yes, Janet Halstead should have been a more active protagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did overall enjoy it. Mm. You know, I was I enjoyed reading it start to finish, even though there was bits I'm like, really. Mm. (laughs) There's an interesting bit in it where I think Janet they're they're all talking about stuff, going oh blah 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 blah, and Janet's like, I need to go off and save some lives here, and she just sort of marches off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it's like good on you. Somebody take it out. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Endearing for Herbert <laughs> to have that person. Yeah, that's a female actually. Yeah, she just marches off stage left, doesn't she? It was a yeah. little bit brighter than your average housewife. <laughs> yeah, 
No, she, she looked no brighter than the average housewife. No, but she turned out to but be. But she a bit turned brighter. out to be brighter. That's yeah, what I yeah. said. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I um, I thoroughly enjoyed it for for all its flaws, just like the rats, and for all that you just wince at times and think, "What the fuck are you on about?" You can understand entirely why these books were so popular and why it was a bestseller because they're. I say this a lot about Mocock, but they're propulsive page-turners. Shocking, funny, probably for the wrong reasons. You're laughing at it rather than with it at times. But they're never, ever without incident or something something interesting going on. Yeah. And there's always something exciting about colossal levels of horror descending upon suburbia and towns and cities, you know, being vividly described. It's like the housing estate scenes in The Rats and the school scene and the London underground scene and all that stuff. It's having this stuff happening in really recognisable locales. Even if you don't live near Hazelmere or Winchester, you know what a rural British town looks and feels like, you know? And I think the other thing is, is that, okay, some of it's really hard to read, but how he must feel as a writer when people like Stephen King base a novel on him, like you say, Life Force. Mm. There's other things that obviously show bits that have obviously from people who've read it. Yeah. And that must be a really big high for a writer, I think. Yeah, then there's also the uh, the waves and waves and waves of copycat writers who jumped on the bandwagon. You know, yeah. one one of the amusing yeah. things about someone like Sean Hudson is he says he's quite, he, he denigrates other authors who are writing his his stuff, yeah, yeah. and in, in yeah. his commentary on the Slugs film, he has the balls to say that he he, he innovated this type of story. He's he's so, and I'd love to think he was joking, but you listen to him, and you think he's, he's, this guy ain't joking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and at least with you know Guy and Smith, he 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 basically just said I could probably write something like this. Absolutely, but he, he never he never took the piss out of. Yeah. Like um, you know, Herbert or you know, he just said, I could probably do this, I'll give it a go, yeah. see what happens. Yeah. You know, he was very humble about that. Um but I think what I like about Herbert is there's elements in his writing that you think actually he he could he could go further mm. with what he did and it'd yes. be a very different experience, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And later on in his career I, I didn't read all of his books, but I, I remember reading Haunted, which I think he wrote in the 90s, and it's a really, really effective ghost story. There's no yeah. gore in it. It's an absolutely chilling and effective ghost story with a Harry Price ball erectory kind of setup. Yeah. And it's brilliant, and it works, and there's no gore, there's no thighs, there's no moist caves. <laughs> it's just It's just a really, really good, tense period ghost story yeah it's great he, he was yeah. a good writer and he got better as he went yeah. on i'd yeah. be really interested to read something like the dark which is writing in probably the early 80s and it has a lot of similarities with the fog from memory but he's writing it probably eight or nine years later so yeah it would be interesting to explore some of his later books i know we were in a and b in beverly near beverly minster and there was a james Herbert book on the shelf creed and i'd never read it and i read that and it was really good it was really good and that's the book that made me pick up a few james herbert books to reread that's why i've got this rubbish pan cover of the fog because i got a, <laughs> a set of five and they've all got similarly bland uninteresting covers it is a particularly bad cover it's I rubbish it's rubbish yeah. isn't it 
for listeners, I will post pictures of our our, our editions. Good yeah. cover. I've got that yeah, one in that the bedroom, but the writing was too small for me. Because <laughs> I think I think this one, the writing's bigger and it's sp- <laughs> spread out over more pages, whereas that one was out in my eyes. Yeah, well, that's what my glasses, you see, and also the audio book. Yeah, it, it was the same. I think I think. There wasn't much difference, actually. When you read stuff out, it's all the same in here. So One difference I had, and uh, mine was a reprint, reprint, is when you pointed out that he had called the young girl Sarah. Oh. In mine, yeah, mine was corrected. the same, actually. It was Clara and mine. Really? Yeah, Clara, well, that's yeah. weird, because this but, is the most recent edition. Yeah. Mm. Uh... But you do find sometimes that later editions with the publishers they get different versions of the manuscripts to print yeah. from we found that with michael mocock books and i've, al- I've also got um uh, a lovecraft with text because that the lovecraft texts have been revised so many times and for something like 80 years there were always the august Daleth edited texts yeah, yeah, then, yeah then st joshi comes along and re-edits them from the original manuscripts and makes them more faithful same thing happened with Robert E. Howard and Conan stories. Sprague de Camp was the editor on Conan stories for a long time, made, made changes, additions, subtractions. And you still sometimes do find, particularly with Lovecraft, is that you'll get a Lovecraft collection published last year that's still using the August Dale of texts. Yeah. So, so is only yours then that calls us Sarah at that point early on? Well, it's a collector's yeah. item then. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a collector's item. Oh, I don't know. Our covers are so much better. They are better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know Good what? Stuff. On that, I think uh, we've, we've yacked on for quite some time on this. So I'll just say thank you, Graham, for joining us once again from your RV in the dark, dark woods. <laughs> Thanks, Phil, for joining us once again from the living room downstairs. And I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> Loved it as Thanks. always. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to me. see you, Graham. And I hope you get into like... your house soon. Well, the uh, 5th of November. Remember, remember. That's when it should be. So. <laughs> but we, we've, we've got a prop we're renting from the National Trust. Not oh, bad. Very nice. Ooh. Good landlord, right? Hopefully. Mm. Hopefully. <laughs> Watch out for weird underground explosions, though. Yeah. Well, I will. I All will. Right. All right. See you later, gang. Bye. See you later. <laughs> massive thanks to phil and graham for stopping by dairy and tom's we always enjoy our halloween specials here at breakfast in the ruins and we may follow up with one of the runners up in the poll over the next couple of months one i've been itching to cover for one reason or another i look forward to getting my thinking cap on too for next year's special but in the meantime over in social media land we were tagged into a post on instagram by wolf Flore. I don't post in real life very often, but I do for things that are important to me. A big thanks to Breakfast in the Ruins for reigniting my love for Michael Moorcock and inspiring me to go on a little eBay spree snatching up some of the retro Mayflower books from my favourite author. I absolutely adore these books for several reasons. Firstly, they're fantastic, trippy, wild slices of 60s and 70s imagination, off-the-wall stories of heroes, anti-heroes, aliens, gods and men. Second, these were the books that my dad recommended I try reading. That alone is special, but add to that, my dad was undiagnosed badly dyslexic. He never really found reading anything but hard, but these books, these stories, kept him reading enough to actually enjoy them. Third is the absolutely beautiful artwork on these covers. I'll post more soon and dig out the rest of my collection too, but oh my god, 
They're psychedelic, surreal, bright, and beautiful. I'm absolutely in love. I adore these books, these connections to my dad, even more now he's not here physically. He's here in my heart, in these pages. These words that have lasted over 50 years and will last many more. I love the power of literature. Oh, and they also smell amazing. Well, all I can say is thank you, Wolf. That gave me a really, really warm and fuzzy feeling in my tum. Pops has been gone for well over 25 years, but I still feel connected to him through these books. And I think that all of us here on Team Breakfast can identify with these sentiments. Also, old books do smell amazing. Finally, I mentioned on the last show that Nan Soundtracks had released the second teaser track from Journal Volume 2, his second album inspired by the escapades of the traveller, Gerard Arthur Connolly. Brainer's Creed will play us out after I finish my babblings. Before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. And our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, Tony Palazzo, and, new to the Donblass, and unfortunately having to bunk up with Brute of Lashmar until we dock at the Haitian Mast, Scott Butler. Thanks for your support, Scott. It's great to have you aboard. And thanks to Andrew Gaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And of course, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jay Reza, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Riedelbato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden, via app or browser. Just search BITR Breakfast in the Ruins or look at the Bradford UK blob on the Radio Garden map. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.
Can I ask, as new Environment Secretary, what are you doing in your own life to address climate concerns? Well, I've always uh, tried to keep the good habits that I got into uh, in regards to um, uh, uh, when I was uh, Environment Minister before. Uh, so the use of um, uh, kind of cups, as it were, to be about uh, uh, permanent cups, uh, but it's um, that we can recycle uh, properly or reuse, I think, is a better way of doing it. Uh, but it's we just all have to keep thinking about the amount of packaging we endure or food waste and other elements like that. So uh, I'll be getting back uh, very much uh, being a champion for those habits, which is about improving uh, what we can do every day uh, in order to help tackle the environmental challenges we face. Right. So reusable cups then. OK.